my gut instinct is that I will be the nominee and in a position to win this in a landslide versus Biden. And they will not let Biden run against me. So I believe that if I am the nominee, they will not let Biden run. It is why they're holding in the back pocket the documents case against Biden. It is why they're holding in the back pocket everything else that you're wondering why they're not charging or bringing now. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's a managerial class, deep state bureaucratic class versus elected official puppets thing. this thing was going to go. My gut instinct is that I will be the nominee and in a position to win this in a landslide versus Biden. You can't um, you can't criticize his optimism. Um, I, I would not be quite. My mic is not plugged in. Son of a gun. No matter how much I do. Here, where the where is the mic cable? It's right there. Listening to. Come on. Okay, hold on. It's not. It's not yet. Come on. We go. Now you can listen to Viva. Uh, what's it called? ASMR. All right, let's start that again. You can't. You can't blame Vivek, or you can't criticize him for not being optimistic. Uh, but I would not place a bet on Vivek as being the nominee, unless I were trying to win like the thousand to one long shot. But even then, I think I would no. Although I like him, and that's not to say I don't like him. But let's let's play this out because I think Vivek is right, but for the wrong reasons. And they will not let Biden run against me. I need to hear this. What would they let Biden run against DeSantis? Would they let Biden run against Trump? Would they let Biden run against Tabarnush? I can't think of the other the other uh, people in the room. Oh, Mike Pence, whose political career and business career should be done given that recent um, outrageous statement that he made to uh, Tucker Carlson. Something about Vivek that they wouldn't let Joe Biden run against him in particular, but the rest of the GOP field? I don't think so. I just happen to think they're not going to let Joe Biden run, period. So I believe that if I am the nominee, they will not let Biden run. It is why they're holding in the back pocket the documents case against Biden. I think he I think he has a good point here. I think we've talked about this a little while ago. Maybe Vivek is watching the channel, the Sunday night streams. Um, they go after Trump for the, you know, the, the wrongful handling of classified documents so they can then turn around and use it against Joe Biden when he's no longer quite the useful idiot that he's been for the last uh, couple of years. It's not it's not far fetched. Who would be a more useful idiot to replace him? Gavin Newsom. You know, he's slightly more liked than Kamala Harris, but at this point, I think they would take anybody who's going to be uh, a plausible, useful idiot that the deep state, the administrative state can use for their bidding. But I don't think Vivek is wrong here. It is why they're holding in the back pocket everything else that you're wondering why they're not charging or bringing now. It's not a Democrat or Republican thing. It's a managerial class, deep state bureaucratic class versus elected official puppets thing. this thing was going to go. Tend to agree with them. Tend to agree with them. Uh, good evening, everybody. Let me make sure that everything is good before we go on. I had to um, move studios yet again. What I'm going to do is make sure that we're live on Rumble. Uh, it looks like we are, in fact, live on Rumble. Very good. We're live on Rumble. Are we live on vivabarnslaw.locals.com? We look like we're live on uh, Viva Barnes. We're live on vivabarnslaw.locals. Vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Okay, look, I've got I've got the sponsors coming up, but let me just make sure that I actually checked the box for uh, this stream contains a paid sponsorship. I did. Good. I've said everything. Before I get into the sponsors, though, I actually want to 
I want to talk about some dirty, dirty stuff. You, you all know that I, I cannot help myself. I follow Mehdi Hassan on Twitter. Mehdi Hassan, uh, to quote a Jerry Seinfeld episode, he's a very, very bad man. Jerry, very, he's, he's a very, very bad man in, in, in the political, I don't know personally, maybe he's, you know, he's, I'm sure he's a great father, great dog owner if he has a dog. Politically speaking, he is what we call a dangerous, uh, a dangerous player. Dishonest, like it's nobody's business. Tactical, like it's nobody's business. Uh, intelligent, like it's nobody's business. People don't like it. Mehdi Hassan is not dumb. Uh, he's smart, but intelligence without a moral compass is like, you know, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a donkey with a, with a tomahawk. No, it couldn't use a tomahawk. Intelligence without a moral compass is a liability. It's not an asset. And intelligence with a twisted moral compass or a partisan political compass, that's just outright dangerous. So pull this up, by the way, because it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, like... Uh, I just had Glenn Larry on last week, and uh, one of my observations, and this was not an observation uh, on affirmative action. This was sort of a, a community observation. You know, like the the Jewish community loves statistical overrepresentation. When uh, you know we get to say, look how many artists, scientists, Nobel Peace Prize winners um, there are out there. Surely it shows something wonderful about the history and the culture of Jews, the love of the book, yada yada yada. Every group loves statistical overrepresentation when it's a good thing. And then all of a sudden, when it's not a good thing, then we say, well, you can't determine anything from that statistical overrepresentation. And if you come to any conclusions that are based on uh, statistical overrepresentation in fields that you don't necessarily want to have statistical overrepresentation in, well, then you're called the isms, the ites, the ists, and whatever. So, all that to say, you know, within the community, we know you, you grow up. Your parents tell you who all the famous actors are. They're Jewish. Oh, you never knew. Harrison Ford's half Jewish. Go listen to Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. You'll find out a lot of um, a lot of actors who are Jewish. O.J. Simpson, not a Jew, but guess who is Hall of Famer Rod Carew. I don't even know who Rod Carew is. I just know the lyrics to that song. Um, so check this out. They're just I'm just you know I'm just fishing through my Twitter feed before the show and I read a tweet from Mehdi Hassan that says so weird that the Jewish public health expert and world-renowned vaccine doctor Peter Hotez didn't want to debate with the, quote, are Jews immune from COVID, dude? Intelligent in that uh, this is a, a, a cunning misrepresentation or repetition of what is overt MSM uh, slanderous hit piece disinformation. RFK Jr. did not say that uh, the, the, the COVID virus was intended to target uh, certain races and not other races. What he did observe, and from what I understand, there is some scientific uh, legitimacy to it, is that, you know, much with like certain diseases that can affect certain genetics more than others, Tay-Sachs sickle cell anemia happened to hit certain demographics more than others. His observation was not that COVID was a bioweapon designed to target certain races and uh, leave others alone, but that it, it might have happened that some races are more susceptible and others less susceptible for whatever the reason. But the media headline, because they got to find a way, they got to go like a next angle to, to, to defame and, and, and demean and degrade and... and slander rfk jr 
RFK Jr. says it was a genetically designed bioweapon that was going after certain races, but not other races. Somebody said hogwash horse crap. Mehdi Hassan knows it, but he knows that his audience is not going to necessarily you know, delve into what RFK Jr. actually said, even though RFK Jr. Uh, spent more time than he should have addressing these accusations on Twitter this weekend. Okay, set that aside. So weird that the Jewish doctor, it's, not, it's nice. Hey, you know, like I always say, you, you know who never, I, I said it with Glenn Lowry, tongue in cheek. You know who never lets you forget that you're Jewish? Members of the Jewish community and anti-Semites. And the reason is oddly the same. It's because that aspect of the identity is the determinant, highly relevant, defining element of a human. When you're in the Jewish community, for good and for bad, you're like, oh, he's Jewish. Okay, well, you know, whatever. Oh, good to know. Oh, are you Jewish? Oh, we have a kinship. We, can, we have something to talk about. Other groups, oh, you're Jewish. Well, that's a def I'm, I'm reducing you to that aspect of your identity. It's a little, you know, it takes a little more dancing to get to sometimes because, you know, black where people can't see it on your, on your face. Sometimes, you, sometimes they can, sometimes they can't. So it's a, it's a bit more of a dance. But the people who continually bring it up and who never let you forget it, oh, you're eating a ham sandwich on Yom Kippur, you shouldn't be doing that, shame on you. Members of the community and people who only see you as a member of the community. So weird, that Jewish doctor. Hey, you know what's so weird, by the way? For someone who pays attention to this stuff, I didn't know that, uh, that Peter Hotez was Jewish. I have to look it up now because I'm, you know, now I'm thinking maybe he's not even Jewish. But Mehdi looks at Peter Hotez. I didn't, I didn't know it. I didn't know Peter Hotez was Jewish. I know that this will certainly now uh, foment some conspiracy theories. This will certainly now uh, play into some bad stereotypes, some statistical overrepresentation, and some theories that some people have um, and now Mehdi Hassan knows damn well it's going to play right into it. Oh, there's going to be people who didn't know that Peter Hotez was Jewish. Jewish public health expert and world... There's going to be some people out there, and I suspect a lot of them, who never knew this. There's going to be some genuine bad faith actors who are going to say Peter Hotez. You know, this, this plays into a lot of historical stereotypes. He's part, he did this. He's pushing this, he's pushing this jab. Uh, yada, yada, yada. There's going to be other people, just the outright trolls on the internet, who are going to now take this piece of information and use it to troll Peter Hotez. And there's going to be, there will be, the um, malicious political partisan tools out there, the foot soldiers, who are deliberately going to send anti-Semitic vitriolic messages to Peter Hotez, even though they are on probably the same ideological alignment as Mehdi Hassan. They're going to do it so that Peter Hotez says, look at all these nasty anti-Jewish comments I'm getting in my DMs right now. The right is anti-Semitic. The anti-vaxxers are anti-Semitic. And Mehdi Hassan knows damn well that he just sparked that, that he just sparked that by doing what he did with this tweet. He knows it. Okay. He knows that he did it. I, I've got to see this. I, I did not know that Peter Hotez, Jewish, had no idea. Peter Hotez, well, let's just go here. I guess it's going to be Jew. Hotez was born in Hartford, Connecticut to a Jewish family. I, I read his Wikipedia page and I didn't know that. That's interesting. Mehdi Hassan knows exactly what he just did here. And he did it on purpose. He did it maliciously. That is a dog whistle. That is to get everybody out there, every troll on the internet to send Peter Hotez dirty, mean, nasty DMs so that Mehdi Hassan's next tweet is going to be, look at all those anti-Semitic, anti-vaxxer, far-right, alt-right, whatevers. Mm-hmm. Okay, now Barnes is in the back, but I haven't done the, um, the sponsors yet. You may have noticed, everybody, 
It said, this video contains a paid sponsorship because it does. We're going to do two tonight. I found this to be much more effective and um, I like it. It's, it flows better. We're going to start with the looking good and then we're going to go into the feeling good. Although looking good and feeling good as Geraldo, what was his name? Uh, Fernando's Hideaway. It's better to look good than to feel good, darling. Well, if you can look good and feel good, that's the best. Uh, I, hold on one second. Let me, let me just see here. Does everybody, how do I look? How do I look? I don't know. Maybe I look tired and cranky. Um, I am not one who really cares about what one looks like physically, except I did brush my hair and, and oil it up so it's nice and smooth and hydrated. Some people care about what their skin looks like. Some people want to look younger. They want to have tighter, firmer skin. They want to, you know, get rid of the, the grimace wrinkles. Genucel.com. I've, uh, I spent time on the phone with this company, uh, the, one of the members of the company, to talk about this and make sure I understood the product properly. They've got a number of skin products which are scientifically um, based, as far as I understand. Dr. Drew has talked about it. Retinol firms up the skin. This is the story. It's an American you know, success story. An Egyptian pharmacist comes to America, starts up his pharmacy, has his own proprietary blends of skin creams, puts them together, sells them or gives them to his customers. And they come back after the weekend and say, we need this stuff. It's so damn good. Make more of it. And thus a business was born. Uh, made in America, out of New Jersey, I believe. They employ something like 50 people. Uh, the product is amazing. The people love it. The, what was I going to say? Sponsor the New Jersey Devils. And if I look younger, if I look younger, people, uh, it, I guess it, it will actually work for your, for your observation as well. Genucel.com, promo code Viva will get you 70% off the most popular package. It's good stuff. Um, shame to admit, I've been using it, but only as a scientific experiment. So if you see differences, um, that is why. Second sponsor of the evening, people, going from looking good to feeling good. Brickhouse Nutrition, fieldofgreens.com. This is another one because I, first of all, I, I use this stuff and I don't, you know, I rarely will say, you know, promote something that I don't actually use myself only so that I could feel good and feel secure about it. Uh, but in addition to using stuff myself, I also like to make sure that it's something legit and something that's actually good and that there's actually some science behind. So I spent a good half an hour on the phone with the doctor from Field of Greens asking about this product. How does it work? How do they make it? Where are their ingredients from? Made in America, USDA organic, because it's a food, it's not a supplement, and it's not an extract. Uh, it's powdered greens. Most people don't know you're supposed to have five to seven servings of fruits and vegetables a day. Most people do not have that. One spoonful of this, it tastes good. It looks like swamp water because swamp water is the nutrient of life. Uh, one spoonful twice a day is two servings of fruits and vegetables. You get your antioxidants. You get all your good stuff in it. It's a healthy habit to get away from the power drinks, to get away from those disgusting chemical sodas. And for those who can't get their fruits and vegetables, it's the alternative. The healthy alternative made in America as well. USDA organic because it's a food. It's not an extract. It's not a supplement. Uh, it's delicious. It's a healthy habit. And if you can't get your fruits and veggies, this is an alternative. If you're on vacation and all that you get is fast food crap, even there when you get your vegetables, it's like iceberg lettuce, which has no nutritional value, plus the salad dressing, which is crap. This is the healthy alternative. Packs easy, packs light, mixes up great. It's delicious. Genucel.com, promo code Viva for 70% off their most popular package. Fieldofgreens.com brings you to Brickhouse Nutrition, 15% uh, off your first order with the promo code Viva. Now, links are in the description as well. Thank the sponsors and thank Robert Barnes for being so patient behind there. Ah, so who's you forage? We should all, don't forage. I knew someone who, um, who wrote the book on 
mushrooms, like wild mushroom eating. It was my mother-in-law's good friend. And the person actually passed away from making a mistake that you can only make once, I guess. All right, Robert, I'm bringing you in here. Five, four, three, two, one. Sir, how goes the battle? Good, good. All right, now, uh, everyone let us know if the audio is good. Robert, am I, am, I, um, am I getting too conspiratorial? Or does Mehdi Hassan know damn well exactly what he was doing by pointing the big finger at now everyone knows jewish doctor peter hotez whatever ill anyone thought of peter hotez because of what he did and said well they now have an identity aspect of politics an aspect of identity politics to hang their hat on does he know what he's doing or is he just a useful idiot well i guess if he attacks you that must mean he's an anti-semite that we'll see we'll see if that happens he's been ignoring me he's been ignoring me it's the best tactic that i think he can he can employ um robert what do you have over your shoulder that is uh, Lincoln at Gettysburg. It is the uh, book of the month that we are reviewing over at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. And uh, a great book about how the America was reinterpreted, reunderstood, and partially recreated in the, uh, through the filter and frame of Thomas Paine's Common Sense and the Declaration of Independence by Lincoln's speech at Gettysburg. Oh, I forgot one other thing, by the way, no medical advice, no legal advice, no election fortification advice. These things right here, by the way, Super Chats, YouTube takes 30% of all of them. Uh, so if you don't want to support YouTube, but you want to support us, you can go over to Rumble. The link is up there in the pinned comment. Rumble takes 20% of those, but they're not doing it for the rest of the year. And best place, Robert, where's the best place to follow us? Yeah, well, there's a live chat ongoing at vivabarnslaw.locals.com. Uh, in the part of the show that is the Locals exclusive part of the show, we'll be covering uh, four bonus topics, plus answering any question that has a any $5 tip or more in the live chat, we will get to. All right. And now, Robert, um, we didn't have the Ray Epps lawsuit on our menu, but do we add that maybe for the after party at Locals or do we have it up there? Oh, we do. Uh, so here's our uh, top 12 topics tonight. Uh, the Fifth Circuit stay on the censorship, government censorship case, uh, whether uh, Vivek is a natural born citizen for the purposes of qualifying for the presidency or the vice presidency, and how it also may relate to both his and Trump's proposals to take away birth citizenship. Uh, what sometimes is called the anchor baby debate. Uh, Ripple has a big win against the SEC. The impact may ripple out throughout the crypto industry. Uh, a major crypto uh, arguable fraudster was indicted, the Celsius uh, former CEO. We have the big uh, Trump uh, uh, trial where Trump's team is moving for a continuance of the case until after election day. Our sixth topic, which was the favorite topic on the board, uh, in the board poll was for the the rare January 6th acquittal mm. out of the uh, District of Columbia and some other January 6th cases people had asked about the Supreme Court petition by Pattis the uh, for one uh, on the obstruction issue we previously discussed the Owen Schroyer plea deal and another bad bail judgment by a January 6th judge then we have the Epps defamation case and whether he will now be prosecuted like he claims in his complaint as part of the January 6th cases New York's redistricting, what does that mean? A, uh, the, the New York's real Supreme Court is its uh, court of appeals. Its Supreme Court is its trial court. And it has uh, ordered the commission back to redistrict. What does that mean potentially for Republicans and Democrats in Congress? Carrie Lake takes her case up to the Arizona Supreme Court or asks that they take it. And Abe Hamada gets, finally gets an order on the last possible day from a trial court judge. Did he dodge justice once again? Uh, well, I'm sure everyone would be shocked, shocked by the answer. Ohio one is a proposal a lot of people had been asked uh, people asked us to discuss because it's up for a vote in August. Uh, we'll discuss that. Uh, the 11th case we'll be discussing is the justice system in Mississippi. 
is, I think, justifiably under legal attack by the NAACP. Both Steve Bannon and Elon Musk have major fee disputes that are ongoing in multiple courts. And our four bonus topics that will likely be reserved for the locals' only exclusive portion of the show will concern the Microsoft monopoly case concerning Call of Duty, Walmart and Bank of America both getting caught overcharging and overbilling, uh, the Texas TikTok ban faces a First Amendment challenge, and a little analysis on the legal uh, uh, take on uh, the scenes from the movie that we watched this week at VivaBarnesLaw.Locals.com. Dirty Harry, was that a correct constitutional analysis in the middle of the movie? Fantastic. Now, Robert, I need you to refresh my memory. The first one of the day is the uh, Fifth Circuit stay of censorship. Yep. Uh, I, I'm, I'm absolutely blanking out as to what that what that subject is. Oh, so the, yeah, that's the Missouri versus Biden uh, Eastern Dist- uh, the Louisiana case where they uh, the judge issued an injunction to prevent the Biden administration's ongoing censorship efforts. The government appealed on an emergency basis to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals expedited the, the process for briefing and oral argument and issued what they call an administrative stay. That's a stay that doesn't resolve anything on the merits pending its oral argument. Okay, so the admit now there's a stay of the stay. There's a stay right. of the injunction. Right. So the Biden administration can go back to censoring for the time being. Uh, and they can go back to discussing with the intent of trying to get them to take down posts on social media. Administrative stay, is there a, uh, I have no idea how that works. Is there a, a time frame or is that administrative yeah. stay until the hearing on the appeal of the injunction to preclude, to prevent the interference? It's an administrative stay pending their uh, resolution of the case. So the but they have ordered an expedited resolution of the case. Yeah, the expedited that that we'll talk about expedited uh, resolutions of cases when we get to Trump. Uh, Vivek, so what's what Vivek? Oh, 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 right before we get to Vivek, yeah, some people had asked. You know, like Tim Pool was like asking, how could this happen? Uh, whenever the deep state, which has deep ties to this case, ask any federal court for emergency relief, they almost always grant it. That's the when the deep state asks, the courts come bowing. That, that's the short answer on why they granted the administrative stay. Again, they didn't address the merits that but when the you know, when it's the FBI, when it's the Department of Justice, when it's the Central Intelligence Agency, when it's though when it's the CISA, when it's these kind of agencies, uh, federal courts uh, just do whatever they ask nine times out of ten. Uh, uh, now I say it, it, the judge is going to be pissed because his order is obviously being overridden, not on the merits though. Does the precedent or does the factual, um, not timeline rather, but does the factual elements of the, of the judge's order still have the same value that it had prior to the stay of the injunction? Uh, kind of, uh, and, and I mean, I mean, everything's kind of pending the appeal, but the, it, it only thing they stayed was the injunctive relief. They didn't overturn anything on the merits or anything else at this stage. Okay. All right. Interesting. And we'll do the Vivek before we head over to uh, Rumble exclusively. So the discussion with Vivek, he's he's a natural born American. He constitutionally um, has no potential impediment to becoming president, much like Kamala Harris did not either, despite the fact that she's first generation born to immigrant parents, brought up in Canada, actually just up the street from where I used to live, went to Westbound High School. Uh, Vivek has the same type of, uh, same type of issue, same type of questions going on for him right now. Yeah. So the, I mean, there's people out there that still believe that the phrase natural born citizen and article two, section one, clause five of the United States constitution is the precondition to be elected president. 
along with the fact that you have to be a 14-year resident in the United States and you uh, have to be at least 35 years of age, with the time, which at the time of the Constitution, that was relatively old. Uh, these days, it doesn't quite, it'd be the equivalent of 45 today, uh, maybe even 50, you could say. But the, uh, uh, but the, there are people who believe natural born citizen uh, requires your parents also be natural born citizens. And so the debate is what does natural born citizens mean? It has correlation to the 14th Amendment provision about if you're born in the United States, you're a citizen of the United and subject to its jurisdiction, you're, you're a citizen of the United States. The both Vivek and Biden have proposed, I mean, not Biden, Vivek and Trump have both proposed banning citizenship for those born in the United States unless their parents were also citizens of the United States. Uh, and and so the question is, are, are their proposals constitutional? And under Vivek's proposal, in essence, he himself wouldn't have been qualified to run for the president if his his changes became law. So the uh, uh, the it, you know in, in the future, so the it's it goes back. So it's 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 mostly anchored in the so-called anchor baby debate, but it, it's come up in the case of McCain. It's came up prominently in the case of Obama. Uh, it's come up. There's been efforts to change it legislatively over the years. You know, one time to try to make Schwarzenegger qualified, another time to make someone, but Orrin Hatch try to push that through. So the question is, what does natural born citizen mean in the Constitution? Uh, but is there not um, a logical uh, sort of a what's the word that philosopher, the philosopher Zenonian paradox here? Uh, if it couldn't be, if you're not natural born because you were born here but your parents weren't. Uh, would that not still be the same problem for the next generation if that rule were to apply? Well, if the father or the parent who was born in America, but their parents weren't, is not eligible for the cost to be president, would their kids then be eligible? The I mean, it, the the full ramifications of it are unclear. the The issue really becomes. I mean, my view is it's it's a lot of this argument has erupted in the context of immigration primarily. Secondarily, in the context of uh, Obama and then even McCain was challenged in 08 on these grounds, others have been challenged over the years. There are people who have brought suit challenging whether that provision is itself overridden by the 14th Amendment. Um, and in my view, the 14th Amendment and this clause are the same. I, I don't think they're really different, even though the words natural born don't exist in the 14th Amendment. I think that's what born and subject to the U.S. jurisdiction means is the same as natural born. And it's a place where I disagree with. I, I don't think Trump's proposal is constitutional at all. I don't think Vivek's proposal is constitutional at all. A natural born citizen. And it's a misunderstanding of the history of the term. It's a desire to restrict uh, uh, what people consider illegal immigration. There's an incentive to illegally immigrate here if you can have your child here, because then you can use that as, quote, an anchor to bring in family members and make them citizens as well or get immigration protected immigration status as well. So I get the political concern, but it misses why this constitutional provision exists. It also misses uh, the common sense interpretation of the word. Uh, it also misses the history of where this originates, policy and principle-wise. Can you, uh, not to get too deep into it, but explain that? Someone in, in Rumble on the chat said, native born is not natural born. And now I, I don't know if that's a distinction without a difference. Yeah, I think they're, they're, that person's wrong. 
So the uh, there have been legal scholars, and this all it goes all the way back to Samuel John- Johnson in the UK. The term itself was commonly used in the United Kingdom going back to the early 1600s. And what it really represents is the idea of citizenship derived from uh, the power of the king. If you were someone that was subject to the power of the king, then you were therefore a citizen of the of the realm. Now, often that came with duties and obligations as much as it came with rights and privileges and immunities. Uh, in our case, it comes with a lot more rights, privileges, and immunities than duties and obligations than it did in the United Kingdom at the time in the 16th and 1700s. But the same, but the principle is, as Samuel Johnson noted, as future legal scholars noted, as people at the time of the founding noted, natural born really meant, meant native born, that, uh, that, that you were native to the land, that you were native to the community, that you were native to uh, being under the jurisdiction of the king. And this provision exists. Uh, primarily and principally to preclude royal aristocrats from stealing the presidency. That, that's why it exists. The 14th Amendment exists to make sure to overturn Dred Scott and make clear that everybody born, white or black, slave or uh, not slave, was a citizen of the United States, regardless of their ancestry. Uh, and that's what you know, Lincoln at Gettysburg is partially about. All men are created equal is the meaning of the American experiment. Um, and that the people uh, being defined therein is anybody born. And the king, like the U.S. government, like sovereigns today, uh, had power, two kinds of power. One was based on who you were as an individual, uh, you know, in personum, personal, personal jurisdiction, jurisdiction over the body, over the corpus, over the individual. Habeas corpus is thus my body is illegally restrained or detained or imprisoned. The, but also territorial jurisdiction, that I have power because of the land where something happened or occurred. Uh, and the, the theory has always been that if you control the land, anybody born on that land is subject to your jurisdiction, subject to your control. So native born, uh, natural born, to me, are identical to the 14th Amendment provision of being born and subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Who they wanted to carve out, aside from royal aristocrats coming in and stealing it, were people that uh, were diplomats uh, that were here because they were not subject to U.S. jurisdiction, but they were here as diplomats. Or maybe an occupying foreign army, uh, that those people would not be considered part of the polity, part of the community. It was not intended to exclude anybody born of immigrants. Um, there's simply uh, no constitutional history for that interpretation, despite anti-immigration voices pretending they are. The Supreme Court has addressed this directly, uh, indirectly, never directly, a half dozen times. And in every single instance, going all the way back to 1844, they agreed that a, na- a natural born person is someone who's physically born within the territory of the United States, period. Um, and that regardless of who their parents are, that that is in, uh, illegally inconsequential to the analysis. So that's why Kamala Harris qualifies to be vice president constitutionally. That's why Vivek qualified. People don't know, don't always remember this applies to the vice president through the 12th Amendment, which added this clause's provisions to the vice president through that amendment. Uh, but that, I mean, for example, I saw there's like post-millennial, some of these other publications were posting stories that said both of your, everybody knows that both of your parents have to be citizens. That's directly refuted. And by the way, if both of your parents had to be natural born parents, Donald Trump wouldn't qualify for the presidency. So, you know, the, the, the people that are advancing these ideas that somehow we should 
limit uh, citizenship to ancestry. What they're mostly confusing is that they've always wanted to extend citizenship to people who are born of American parents, even if they're born outside of the United States. And that was to protect their their citizenship inheritance rights uh, through their uh, American parents. And they didn't want them to lose their citizenship just because the coincidence in those cases of them being born in a foreign territory. Um, but so the uh, and thus it extended to John McCain, who was born in Panama. Thus, even if in my view, even if Barack Obama had been born in Africa, that was part of the dispute. To me, it was a statutorily uh, coincidence that at the time the Congress didn't recognize that as natural born citizenship. But I don't think Congress has the right to interpret it however it wants. I think that uh, that because his mother was an American, he was an American. And the uh, so uh, the that but they take that and they try to make that the limit of citizenship. Uh, the and that's a different strain. You can either have be subject to the king because of who you are as a person, or you can be subject to the king because of where you are as a person, and where who you are born to or where you are born to are two alternative paths, not the not uh, only one path to citizenship. And that's what it means. That's what it was intended to mean. That's what almost every scholar, senator, congressman, representative, founder, Supreme Court decision, jurist, legal decision has said about it. And so this attempt to eviscerate this because it might be politically convenient uh, is a bad idea. Uh, You know, as I always say, you got to accept the entire, if you don't like the Constitution, amend it. Uh, and the that that's your solution. It's not to amend it by legislative fiat, by executive fiat, or by judicial fiat, or by political convenience. Okay, it's very interesting. I, I had only looked at it from the perceived loyalty aspect, like someone who's first generation, whose parents are immigrants and who was born here as an anchor baby might have conflicted loyalties, and people would be concerned in terms of representation. The historical aspect that you just explained adds another dimension to it. And I was just double, you know, making sure when it came to Vivek. Uh, immer- parents were immigrants born in, uh, born and raised in Ohio, I think. A- and as far as I had no idea, he's 37. I didn't realize he's that young. Uh, loyalty to nation. I don't think people have, would have the same concern with Vivek that they have with Kamala, who first generation born even, to immigrant parents, but born, raised in Canada. And so and I even cannot- there, that's like, you know, we allow dual citizenships. That really wasn't their concern. Their concern wasn't the possibility of being subject to another foreign, uh, uh, foreign government their concern was a royal aristocrat stealing the presidency so it was not that somebody might have another obligation and i've never supported that because there's people who want to interpret natural born citizenship to be exclusive to mean that you can only be subject to the jurisdiction of the united states under the 14th amendment well that's not what it says they could have chosen that. They chose not to. And this debate was had at the time in Congress, by mm-hmm. the way, about what did it mean to be subject to a foreign government. And the they chose to just make it subject to, not only subject to, because otherwise, for example, uh, you know, it, what would happen if a foreign government, this happens in Israel in some cases, other cases, make someone a citizen, right? Or declare someone a citizen uh, the, uh, by for uh, some reason. Like, well, you know, I, I would friend, say that- that they can't, they can't serve in government. I, Robert, I'm going to need you to convince me why. I oh, think, but, but why, why, they do that? Well, to me, that that doesn't matter at all. That should never matter constitutionally, because otherwise you subject a, a person's president citizen president citizenship rights to the whim of a foreign government. 
because the foreign government can declare it without your willingness. Oh, well, you could <clears> renounce it. You could renounce it then. But I, I, I sometimes I, you can renounce it. Sometimes you can't. I mean, take for example, most people who are who have U.S. citizenship didn't realize they had U.S. citizenship because they were born overseas, grew up overseas, etc. But they were the, a parent was a U.S. parent, and then the U.S. decided to impose FATCA on their foreign bank accounts. They're subject to it. You know, they, they can't they can't retroactively repatriate or renounce. The U.S. often objects to the ability to even do so, uh, to expatriate or renounce. So the whether you have a right to renounce is still a, a, an ongoing ongoing issue, because they still say it's a matter of legislative grace whether you have a right to renounce your citizenship. They can condition it upon forfeiture of your property. So uh, I'm not in favor of giving the state that kind of any state that kind of power. Plus, it's just not what the founders meant at the time. There's absolutely no evidence that they intended. To and, and it makes sense if you understood the history and the origin of the term. The origin of the term was if you're subject to our power, then you have the privileges of our power. So the if it is someone born in the United States subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, uh, yes. The only people who wouldn't be would be a foreign occupying army, the son of a diplomat here on immunity, born. You know, those are the rare exceptions. Uh, but nobody else would would, would apply. And again, this was intended. It's like the emoluments clause being misapplied these days. This was intended a very particular concern. Foreign aristocrats, dukes, kings, usurping the American presidency. If it doesn't address that, it doesn't really reach anything else. And then the limited issue of Americans born overseas who might be on military or diplomatic duty or for other reasons uh, and ambassadors kids born here. Those are the only people they meant really subject to the exclusion and nobody else. And once you start giving presidents and politicians and jurists the means to start excluding people from citizenship, you end up with decisions like Dred Scott. That's an interesting perspective about it. I, I, I'm still concerned by the dual loyalties of those who are sitting in government. And I, and I needle some of our Canadian politicians who, have the, who are not Ukrainian and have the Ukrainian flag in their bios along with the Canadian flag. And, you know, I, I do question whose interests they represent. I wouldn't, it's an interesting perspective that you can't renounce it for tax reasons. That seems to be indicative of another problem, not necessarily the one that I think is the problem in terms of representing your citizens, but um, all right. Fascinating. And uh, hold on. There was one more thing about Vivek. I forget, Robert, are your, is your opinion on his odds changing uh, in accordance with the market? No, no. Okay. (laughs) All right. Now, before we go over to you, Rumble exclusively, let me just bring up a few of these uh, super chats. Robert's opinion on citizenship runs contrary to the understanding of every other nation in the world. Wrong, wrong and wrong. Read the history, read the legal history, read the Supreme Court's history, read the scholars history. Don't read your selective history. I get a whole bunch of anti-immigrant. And, the, and then once again, they're unleashing something dumb and dangerous because they're short term minded. That the if you believe that uh, you don't want anchor baby problems and that that's such a disaster, amend the Constitution. That's your remedy, not by judicial fiat, not by legislative fiat, not by executive fiat. And ask yourself whether you really want to start giving the state that power. Don't you do you think they when the state gets to decide we we can strip you of your citizenship just by redefining what something means uh, at a whim? You like that idea? You really think that's a good idea? People have not thought this through. They get short-term minded, they get short-term focused, and they make dumb decisions when they do that. Uh, Notes, and I don't know this to be true, Robert, you'll know better than me. SCOTUS rule is that children born to lawful U.S. residents- Completely wrong. The Supreme Court explicitly rejected exactly what he said. Learn to read Supreme Court decisions before you make dumb questions. (laughs) 
Uh, thank you for the super chat. <laughs> However, now the chief's way says, here's my conspiracy theory. Department of Justice fakes charges on Epps to give Epps a reason for a lawsuit for a fake trial to clear his name and save their arse. Not bad. Uh, and then we got uh, the mark of the my little beast is not a birthmark. Well, I've got both dogs down here now, one sleeping on my backpack and the other one already took a dump. Uh, I cleaned it up before the stream. That's why I was a little late. Okay, how do I get this out of here like this? Uh, everybody, head on over to Rumble now. We're going to continue the party exclusively on Rumble because they are the platform that supports free speech and I'm exclusive with them. So Viva Barnes, Viva Fry on Rumble. The link is there. 2466 people should be migrating to the great rumble and then we're going to go to locals afterwards so i'm ending on youtube right now go to rumble all right uh robert what was next on our menu here hold ripple. on ripple ripple oh this is so this is there's a there's i know you're happy about this happy whether or not you made predictions that you could you know had it gone one way or the other you could have said i was right but you're you were right robert now the the argument at the time was that these are not securities in the standard sense of the word, as per the Howey test, which I'm going to ask you to explain for us. But the bottom line, uh, the SEC went after Ripple, claiming that their tokens, that their, their, their crypto was a security. Not, uh, you'll have to flesh out the difference between a currency and a, and a security, but a security subject to the Security and Exchange Commission regulation. Uh, the judge came down. I suspect this decision is going to go right to appeal. Tell me if I'm wrong. But bottom line, they said, um, Ripple can issue securities as securities, but that their crypto or their tokens, whatever we want to call them, do not pass the second aspect of the Howey test and are not securities and shall not be deemed to be securities. Ripple, obviously, once upon a time I had Ripple, I sold it when it was delisted because I, 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 I've never made a penny off crypto. Um, Ripple obviously had a great day on Friday. Uh, the decision sounds sound, Robert, but I, I mean, I, I'll need you to flesh out for everybody who might not know exactly what the Howey test is. What is the Howey test? Uh, is this decision the sound, correct decision? I think I know that you think it is. Uh, does it get appealed? And, and, and what is the long-term prospect for Ripple specifically? And does this have actual Ripple effects for all other cryptocurrencies out there? Oh, without question, because the federal judge said that a digital token is not in and of itself a security. And that's precisely what the Securities and Exchange Commission, Commission was using the Ripple case to try to establish. The goal, and that's what, there's there's criminal cases pending we'll get to that actually rely upon the assumption that a digital token is a security. There's a bunch, all those lawsuits involving crypto, almost that are trying to go after Tom Brady and Shaquille O'Neal and Matt Damon and all the rest, uh, and Kim Kardashian and, and uh, Mayweather and, and you name it all rely upon the assumption that a digital token is a security and holding them liable for promoting mm -hmm. a security in, in, without it being registered and without meeting other standards and tests. I have never believed, one, I think the SEC has always overreached. I think the Howery test is too broad. Uh, I mean, it was the SEC was meant to really govern stocks traded on Wall Street or traded on those kind of exchanges. It was never really intended to reach everyday, uh, ordinary business activity, um, investing in commodities and currencies and other things of that nature outside of the, you know, the stock market itself or something equal there, too. But the Supreme Court ex extended it, expanded it dramatically during the peak of the New Deal so they could regulate whatever the heck they wanted. And basically now they can regulate anything as long as it's an investment contract. But even under that 
broad definition of security, a digital token never fit that definition. Nobody is buying the token. Be, uh, one, few people are buying it as part of a contract. Two, uh, here there were some institutional people that did, and thus that was subject to the security laws in the Ripple case, but everything else they rejected. Uh, but the yeah, I mean, the investment of money, common enterprise, expectation of profit derived from the effort of others. That's too broad. Well, if, if, to play devil's advocate, um, I, I, I could see the investment of money. People buy crypto with the expectation. What does that, that even it, mean, investment of money? Does that mean expenditure of money? Does that mean transfer of money? Does that mean transfer of other things? Oh, well, no, let's. I'm not going to, not, not, without commenting on whether or not this should be the test, just as far as right. the test goes, an investment money. Yeah, I, I spend a uh, hundred bucks on, on Ripple. I, I'm not doing it because I think it's going to go be worthless. I do it because it's going to be worth something. Like I buy a, a gold coin in a common enterprise. And that's where I guess the main distinction is when you buy shares in a company, you want to have a say in the activities of the company. When you buy crypto, it's it's roulette. I mean, it's it's like sort of, uh, in a way, it's sort of like gambling at a casino Right. Nobody would consider that, I don't think, a security. You're not buying shares. And then, the, and then the other component is the promoter component, which is, I mean, the, I mean, what, what should have been defined as a security is something that was more akin to a stock. And they should have defined it that way. And instead, the court just expanded it to reach things that were uh, akin to stocks. And it ended up being anything that was an investment contract. And then what the definition of investment really ended up depending upon, because they were so vague about what common enterprise means, so vague about what it means to invest. It all came down to is, are you paying for somebody to promote it? And it's like, okay, now you've got every promotion plan out there. And, and that's way too big or broad of a definition. But even under that, and, and Ripple, to their credit here, try to restrict the definition of Howard. Use it to say, here's what the law was really intended to get to. Here's what's still consistent with Howard, but we'll restrict this from getting wayward. The court rejected Ripple's defense, but Ripple's defense will take that up through the appellate food chain and say, this is what the law should be because this is getting way too lax, way too liberal, way too re much regulatory power. But even under that, the court said, digital token doesn't even meet that standard. And so, I mean, what Ripple does, it's a, it's a cryptographic blockchain ledger. And then and they created XRPs, a digital token. Uh, and some of those digital tokens they gave to employees and gave to uh, uh, key executives. Some they, they, gave, they, gave, they were allowed to be sold on an exchange where, they, where nobody knew who the seller or buyer even was. There was anonymity in that process. And then some they sold institutionally pursuant to contracts. Only the last one did she say, could that constitute a security? The rest, she said, don't, which is, she said, because there's no two main reasons why. When here, the anonymity function of, of Ripple was critical. The anonymity function, she's like, how can you call something an investment contract with an intention and expectation of promotion of the contract when the seller doesn't know who the buyer is and the buyer doesn't even know who the seller is? It's like, that, that's kind of nuts in the context of an exchange. So what she said is all the cryptos on exchanges are not securities. This guts all the civil lawsuits out there against all the so-called promoters. This guts the suits against what? Shaq, guts the suits against Tom Brady, gets the, it, it guts all of them. Um, and so the, I mean, that was a massive, massive win against the SEC by Ripple, but for the entire crypto industry. Robert, I'm just thinking out loud now, these markets where you have the futures on presidential candidates, um, those, those, are, those are not 
those are not considered to be securities. Well, I mean, there are aspects that the 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 CF the I think it was the community I think it was the Commodities and Futures Trading Commission. They were trying to regulate predicted on some grounds that they had regulatory control, but the Fifth Circuit stayed it. People wondered why predicted still up and active. That's why. Uh, the the court was skeptical of the and it hasn't been reached final adjudication, but they won't, aren't allowing the government to enforce that, and nor should they. And I mean, I've had a problem with a lot of these the gambling laws applying to a lot of what goes on in political betting or sports betting in general, because in in reality you you are um, you, you're not it's not random chance just isn't doesn't meet the definition of of gambling. Gambling is something you have no control over the outcome of, um, and that sports betting, you absolutely have some control over the information that's either more likely or not less likely to occur. Same with political campaigns and the rest. So I think they've misapplied those laws in those contexts, but they've tried to apply securities. And California is also one of the worst. All, I mean, you know, uh, future purchases and vehicles uh, way back. It's an older case. They try to call that a security. I mean, they try to call all kinds of things a security that just aren't. It, it was meant to I'm going to give you money for stock in an enterprise, right? I mean, that's what it was meant for. And if you want to apply it outside the stock market, okay, I'm not a big fan of that, but fine. Um, to, you know, the penny stocks and the unlisted stocks and all those, okay. But that's what it was for. Uh, it was not for every other contract concerning a commodity uh, or concerning a currency. And it should never have been applied there. Uh, now, this case doesn't reach those aspects. Because it doesn't have to, because it says all you got to look at is the anonymity, uh, and uh, by itself, and you realize that that it just just the very nature of a digital exchange. And then she said, as to all the money given to executives and employees, that's an in kind benefit. They didn't even make the investment, so there's, there's no not even an investment here. So the government was trying to pretend that your labor time was worth it was the equal to being an investment. That gives you an idea how badly they were broadly they were trying to define investment. That now it meant anything, anything in, an in exchange for possible future compensation was now an investment. This was the problem with those two loose, two liberalized terms the Supreme Court used. But it's a, uh, and they emphasize it doesn't matter if your motive is speculative, because going to your point, that was part of what the government was arguing. If your motive is to purchase this because you think it will go up in value, it's automatically a security. It's like, dear Lord, that covers a ridiculous thing. Number oh, of things. Baseball cards. I mean, that, yeah, that's absolutely. Can you imagine everybody getting arrested for selling baseball cards because they're unregistered securities? I mean, that's how nuts what the government was doing. Uh, but it was essential to their war on crypto uh, because, I mean, Ripple had been very effective at selling its XRP token on digital exchanges, but it also is open source, which I like. So people can use it for, you know, why it's more transparent than a lot than, than the problematic cryptos. Uh, it still has certain issues because people closer to it make the most money and that, that can create uh, an effect that's undesirable. But putting that aside, the open source component of it uh, ended up saving it in many respects because it created the anonymity for the digital exchange to operate, but also allowed people to use the app for all kinds of payment processing purposes and become almost a de facto medium of exchange. Uh, that facilitated the current exchange around the world. And basically, it's removing power from central Central banks and government. That's what crypto really does. It limits surveillance power. It limits control power. It limits uh, the government's uh, ability and central bank's ability and really a cartel of private banks. If you talk about the euro dollar, uh, who's really running the financial system more than the central banks or governments even are. And it, it precludes them from having the power they want 
uh, and that's why there was this SEC war on them. And this was a massive, massive, this was their big test case. Massive, massive defeat. But also it has all kinds of repercussions and ramifications for all those plaintiffs' lawyers thinking they were going to get rich. So in the shacks of the world, because they advertised or marketed a digital token. Well, I mean, they could still go after the shacks for, I don't know, fraudulent misrepresentation, which, you know, I'm thinking of Dennis. Almost all their theories are promotion theories because they really don't have him knowingly knowing that the underlying they don't even i think allege that he knew that what he was promoting wasn't good they were saying you're a promoter you're an unregistered promoter hence you're liable under the securities law that's interesting security bye-bye lawsuit when it when it comes to kevin o'leary i i sort of took for granted he knew what it was he was in on the pump and dump he's a different story yeah Okay, so that's that's fascinating. They're not um, they're not undoing the Howey test. I mean, I, I, we brought it up, and we could no, see no. This how- judge did not. This judge okay. did not accept. But Ripple is preserving that. So that's the government risk for fighting this up through the appellate food chain. Is that the court goes even further than the, an appeals court or the Supreme Court goes even further than the district court does, and says we're going to clarify what this means going forward, and uses what Ripple called the essential ingredients test, which I think is which is saying let's get this back to being stocks. You know, let's you know, it, it's got to be you have a contract for the purpose of increasing the value of the of what you're purchasing with, with depending upon the promoter's explicit and express commitment to promote it. If you include those components in it, you make it much you make it a stock, which is what Securities and Exchange Commission is supposed to be about, not about anything traded that they want to regulate. All right. Well, I guess now I see the. um interplay between this and the celsius indictment but i suspect the guy from mashinsky from celsius is in big trouble anyhow so celsius robert i i have uh just brain farts when it comes to crypto i i understand sort of what it is you know they say uh decentralized uh, uh, d- digital ledgers and it can't be falsified and yet it, i know what crypto is in a sense and i don't understand it celsius is excuse me, yet another one of these crypto currencies that issue a token Apparently they were le- they were offering like easy access loans based on their tokens, which they were hoping would increase in value. I don't know what Mashinsky did to pump up the, the 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 value of the tokens, but it went the way of the dodo bird of the um, Sam Bankman Freeds of the FTXs, and I guess their token tanks. The the very asset that makes the 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 value of the company uh, disappears into nothing because, as far as I still understand, cryptocurrency is money made out of nothing. Now he's been indicted, fraud, uh, but the SEC is going after him as well for you know violating securities and SEC law. Um, if you're able to explain what Celsius d- uh, did better than I can, and is the fraud merely uh, a pump and dump fraud scheme, or is this somehow unique to crypto? And now what's going to happen to the SEC aspect of it, given the ripple rippling effect? This is one of the many bad faith actors, according to the allegations of the indictment in the crypto space that that used some of the benefits of crypto against its potential audience. Uh, And basically, they're saying because crypto has all of these values, you can now use it to do high leverage loans. You can store it now as an asset for us that will get you a higher rate of return because of how we're able to invest that you'll get all the benefits of the big banks without the burdens of the big banks, without the access restrictions of the big banks. And so they they parlayed how this is an alternative to the big banks to a susceptible audience 
that didn't understand the distinctions and some of whom were just greedy. You know, some of the audience, you know, if it's too good to be true, it is, it's not true. I mean, some of the leverage promises and profitability promises they were making were deeply problematic. Well, it's, it, it sounded just as preposterous as FTX. Like it's just going to, it's just going to keep going up. What I don't understand in all of this is they use the tokens to procure easy access loans that loan has to be turned into fiat currency somewhere down the line. I don't understand how that interplay works. They, they, I, mean, I, I don't understand how that works. Can you flesh it out for a, a dunce? The, uh, it gets complicated. The short <laughs> answer is it's, hey, give us your crypto. And if you give us your crypto, we'll convert it into investments. We'll convert it into lending power to you in potentially in, in U.S. currency. And we'll uh, invest it uh, on your behalf and, it, and you'll be investing it uh, you can buy our token as a way in which to securitize it and collateralize it. And what they really did is they were taking the money, using it for speculative investments that weren't getting the rate of returns that they were lying about. Uh, they they were secretly buying up at different key times part of their own token in order to inflate its value and create a run on, in the market. Um, and then they were not uh, securing the customer's deposits like they said they were, much like FTX. So it's very analogous to FTX in many respects. Uh, it was like a mini F FTX. Now, where I mean, the the CEO apparently made forty million in profits off of this. At one point, they had twenty five billion under management. They ended up with less than five billion. Had to go into bankruptcy. The a lot of big names were tied to Celsius. Now they uh, the the, even the CEO had been around for a brief period of time. His CFO was uh, or COO was a, a I think a UK corporate lawyer that came in on the scam, saw the opportunity, ran with it according to the allegations of the indictment. Where I have they the the Fed say that the earnings program that they were running the you know rewards program, which was a disguised investment scheme, was a security. They may be right about that, but they also claim the token was a security. I don't think they went on that anymore. So I think that securities fraud part of the case goes away. But they also have just old school conspiracy to defraud, commodities fraud, wire fraud, et cetera. Uh, so I think that they have plenty of ground. Wire fraud is so broad. If you use anything that goes through the mail in these days, Internet automatically is across state lines. They, and you do anything to, to defraud someone of their money or property, basically you're nailed. So it's basically a fraud case these days. And it sounds like from the indictment, they have a long litany of false statements and misrepresentations made by him, known to be made by him, that weren't just speculative investment hopes or, or promises. So I think that uh, uh, he looks to be in serious trouble. And now uh, I'm just pulling up his Wikipedia. <laughs> uh, early life, Mashinsky was born in 1965 in the Soviet Union to a Jewish family. His family obtained permission to leave the country in the 70s, later moved to Israel. From an early age, he was a tinkerer like his father, yada, yada, yada. I was looking for any political connection, Robert, like the FTX, um, what's his name? Sam Bankman-Fried. Do we know if there's any uh, political uh, Ukrainian, Russian, I don't know, uh, uh, aspect to this? Not that I know of, no. And now do we know if he's actually, is he like the Lord of War guy who pretended to be Jewish to get out of the Soviet Union to go to Israel, or is he... Re, you know, okay, fine. I, 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 I'm trying to get my oldest to watch Lord of War because I think it's a great movie to watch, but made the mistake of starting Wolf of Wall Street. I've never seen it before, Robert. 
The first two scenes of that movie are wildly inappropriate. That's, that's not a kid's show, no. Kid's oh, movie. I was like, oh, it's a, it's a lot. You know, it's about the the, the law stuff. It, it's be... a trip through depravity. <sighs> Anyhow. Uh, that so whole I'll... movie is, by the way. That whole movie is really a trip through de degeneracy and depravity. Well, that, I learned that, a valuable that, lesson. It's not really any, oh, hardly at all about his Wall Street activities. Damn, I, I thought it was going to be a, an educational thing. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Well, anyways, I'll watch it when with my wife, maybe, when the kids aren't around. Uh, okay, Robert. The big, I guess it's the big news of the week. I've been watching. So first of all, I watched, I watched Robert Gouveia's breakdown um, explanation of the, of the whole Trump request for a continuance. I'm trying to get, you know, the, the differing points on this. We've talked about how the, the federal indictment was going to proceed, how a criminal federal trial proceeds, how long it takes, how it's, you know, they set the tentative or the initial trial date knowing that it's never going to be respected. It takes what, two years, Robert, to get to a typical federal uh, criminal trial? A, a complex white-collar case, usually 18 months. 18 months. Now, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I'm, reading the, uh, I'm reading the filings. I'm listening to analyses. I even went to CNN, and they had a decent guy on who said, look, you know, typically it's 18 to 24 months. Uh, you know, Trump is not, he's not abusing of any process here. It would actually be outlandish to think you'd get a December trial date. But then you have... Uh, the Anderson Coopers and the others pontificating that, you know, like lo Trump's lawyers, and you'll, you'll flesh this out a little more for us, they need to apply for clearance so they can see the alleged classified documents that are at the source of the indictment. And Anderson Cooper's like, well, shouldn't they just, you know, do that? Doesn't it? And, and the guy who's answering him is like, th those documents take like a week to fill out. They ask for everything in your history. And so now you have the, you have the government that's prosecuting Trump determining whether or not his attorneys get clearance to look at the documents. I mean, so the whole thing is, is, is outlandish. Trump asked the big news of the week and people are like, oh, this is, he's, he's gaming for delays. He asked for an indefinite postponement of the trial because the initial August date obviously was never going to get respected. As far as I understand, Robert, they need to set this date um, for the protection of the defendant, not, not um, for no other reason, so that the defendant benefits from the right to a speedy trial and the defendant can agree or not to postponements, which are basically systematic because a lot of stuff needs to get done before you get to trial. In this case, they had an initial August date. They request a continuance. Uh, Jack, whatever his name is, asks for it until December. Trump says, look, indefinite. We've got a number of preliminary motions to dismiss, constitutional challenges, discovery, et cetera, et cetera. Let's not even schedule a pro forma date do it indefinitely, and now everybody in the media is saying he's gaming the system for a delay until after the election because he's a, a, a crook and a thief and a liar and, and yada, yada, yada. Um, I mean, you, you'll, you'll let us know what you think. This, this is standard. It's unreasonable to think that you would have a trial, A, by December, but even before the election. It might even be constitutionally um, insulting to suggest that you should have a criminal trial when this would be the issue for the election in and of itself. Robert, I've, I've been rambling for long enough. What do you think about all this? Yeah, so there's two different provisions at issue. One is the Speedy Trial Clause of the U.S. Constitution, and the other is the Speedy Trial Act passed by Congress. The Speedy Trial Clause is just the accused. It's the In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy a right to a speedy and public trial. The Speedy Trial Act goes further. It says the government and the public has an interest in a speedy trial. So the Supreme Court determined in 2006, Surdock, I think is the case, 
the uh, which said that the defendant's interest is not alone sufficient under the Speedy Trial Act that you can take into consideration the public and prosecutor prosecutorial interest in a speedy trial as well. Uh, but the government requested it without really strong, compelling grounds for its why the trial date in December is practical. The defense objection is solid, but not spectacular. So in a case, what they did is they filed the kind of motion, opposition, motion to continue or motion to, effectively, it's a motion to continue the, the currently calendar trial date. It's just an opposition to the motion to continue the government filed for December. They want a motion to continue. It's currently trial is scheduled for August. Uh, is to to be indefinite after the election with just status conferences scheduled. The uh, I think they better have been better off putting a specific date on there. But putting that aside, the uh, because there's some language in the Speedy Trial Act that can be interpreted to mean you have to set a specific date. Most there's judges who recognize that the courts generally don't require that if you give the good cause exceptions. But you know this judge has typically been more of a rocket docket quick judge. Uh, Judge Cannon. So even though she's a Trump appointee, it was expressed skepticism about aspects of this case during the search warrant stage of it um, and recognize the uniqueness and the extraordinary nature of it. Uh, she is someone that in, is inclined to set specific dates and go quicker rather than slower. The uh, Under the Speedy Trial Act, there are many grounds to uh, continue that include to extend the date. So basically, the Speedy Trial Act says you got to hold trial within 70 days of arraignment. And uh, but it says what should not be counted within those 70 days is any time needed for an interlocutory appeal, mm -hmm. any time needed uh, for uh, for dealing with any pretrial motion, any time needed uh, for the defense under ends of justice and the ends of justice. And they have to make specific findings verbally or in writing on the following factors. The case is unusual. The case is complex. The case has novel facts. The case has novel law. The case has pretrial proceedings that will require unusual preparation. Mm -hmm. Or, these are all or, reasonable time necessary for effective preparation of the defense counsel, given due diligence the defense counsel must engage. These would have applied to Trump had they been ands, conjunctive ands. I mean, this is each yeah, exactly. and every... Exactly. I mean, even okay. it was ands, yes. Now, what I'll lay out what their motion laid out and lay out where I think they could have been a lot better. But what they laid out are the here are the unique, novel, complex facts. Uh, this is a case that they are trying to schedule in the middle of a presidential election. It is an incumbent indicting his opponent. It is the first ever indictment of a former president. It is the first ever indictment of the leading opponent of the incumbent administration. That the review for classification principles has all kinds of problems. Problem one is them even getting a chance to review it due to the delays in the authorization process. The second problem is only they can review it. They can't subcontract it out to anybody. For those that don't know, in a criminal case, uh, white collar cases, lawyers often subcontract that out to para one. Sometimes it's with it in house, other paralegals, other associates, forensic investigators. But there's third party firms that specialize in just helping you index, organize, uh, do the discovery review, put it in a searchable database. They can't allow that in this case because they have to physically, personally review every single one. Can't give anybody access to it at all to even organize it or index it, which is makes it unusually extraordinarily difficult. And then there's under the classification review procedure. What's also unique about the case 
is they have to uh, submit in advance to the court what documents they wanted to, to publicly publish. It's a whole specialized protocol. And and they're opposing, they're saying a lot of this is not really classified, but that's going to be subject to a separate pretrial proceeding. Uh, the, the Whether or not certain things we've even been, been given under the grounds that they're too classified for us is going to be subject to a separate pretrial proceeding. The government wants to introduce some of this as secret evidence. We oppose that entirely. But basically, the classification review procedure are unique, unusual, complex questions of both fact and law that are novel to the case. Then they say, look, there's going to be natural delays here uh, because of the limited personnel. Uh, then you talk, Then they say, there's also something that's very unique and novel and complex about the case is how the heck are we going to pick a jury in the middle of a presidential election? Uh, and then they talk about the unique legal issues. The unique legal issues include the Presidential Records Act, include the classification questions that are coming at issue, whether the special counsel even had authorization to bring this. And then they mention all the preparation issues that they have already been discovery delays. There's going to be extensive pretrial motion practice that it took the government more than a year with much more resources than they have to even bring prosecution, that there's already more than 800,000 pages of discovery more than 100,000 emails, 57 terabytes of CCTV footage, and that there's more to come and more to fight over. And let me all just play in the devil's advocate because I've been listening to too much CNN. Oh, there's there's 80,000 documents, but only, only uh, what did they say, 4,600 were relevant. Oh, yeah, we've got months of CCTV footage, but the government's telling it only this is relevant. Oh, yeah, they, you know, they, they, they need special access to the uh, classified documents, but they can have a team look at the documents that are not classified. I mean, the problem with any claim like that, and governments often do, is they wouldn't have produced it if it wasn't material. It, well, that's it. I'm going to let I'm going to let the person prosecuting me tell me what they've selected from an exorbitant amount of documents as being the relevant part. Don't worry about the rest of it. There could be exculpatory stuff in there that was not brought to my right. attention. And the uh, federal yeah. government doesn't have an open file policy, so anything they produce is an implicit admission that it is material to the case. I'm sorry, they uh, may not. They may so, not plan. What does that mean? An open file policy? So an open file is you turn over everything you have in your case. Government, federal government does not utilize that standard. They only give you what they feel they are obligated to give you. They don't give you everything that they have to give you. Uh, so they, or they don't give you everything they have. So, the, so that means when they give it to you, they're saying, by the way, this uh, is material to your case. They may only want to use a small subset in their prosecution but that doesn't that's not the definition of materiality because they wouldn't have given it to you if it was material it's the stuff they're not planning on using that you really have to look at because they're giving it to you because they're saying it's material but it's not incriminatory so that means it's probably exculpatory so the uh so that that is uh all exceptional grounds and what i said at the very beginning was that this? It was highly unlikely that this case would take place before election day, and that it was much more likely that election day would be the de facto verdict day of America on this case. And so, and I still stick to that. And I don't think the judge will grant the government a trial date in December. Even if the judge did, the defense can come back and continue to submit motions to continue as the as the record gets more thorough and developed. So I've had cases where the judge will set it saying, well, if you're really right, just come back in two months when you really have more record detail for me to find. Um, I do think she's more inclined to give a set date, but I think if she gave a reasonable date, uh, that date's going to be uh, early 2025, just realistically. 
the uh and then schedule some pretrial hearing dates etc i mean like right they by the december date they were this government was trying to set they were saying the defense had to bring every single motion on the merits every motion to dismiss but it's so st- Robert, by the end of july but why i mean it's it's not even a plausible prospect to entertain even to hear an appeal on an interlocutory decision in an ordinary one issue case will take you know 6 to 12 months it's it's what is the irrational um uh, quixotean pursuit of the prosecution to get a trial before the election where even everything they've done seems to be increasing Trump's numbers. Even if they get a conviction before the election, I think that would help Trump more. What is their, what is their irrational um, obsession with, with, with having a trial before? Oh, because they know if Trump wins, the case is DOA. And so they, they're their only chance at securing a conviction that matter that, that can even temporarily matter or to justify what they did is if it happens before election day. So that the, they tried to bring it quickly enough so that they could, in their minds, get it before Election Day. But it would be insane for a judge to give it to them before Election Day. And I don't think this judge is, even though she's a rocket docket judge, I don't think that's going to happen. Even if she were to temporarily set it that way, it would just be a temporarily, temporary setting, a trial date setting. So the And I said this from the get-go. And people are, oh, you don't know. You know Steve Dace oh. was saying, Trump will be in jail before Election Day. Uh, none of that was ever likely to happen. Well, pe- people freaking out about the August trial date. I mean, it's it's yeah, and I kept trying to tell me that that's they have to schedule that because of the Speedy Trial Act until the court makes separate independent findings. That's all that meant procedurally. If you knew the history of white collar cases, uh, I mean, I obviously do a lot of federal criminal defense work and have for about a quarter century. But you know, you, you could just research this a little bit and see. You know, I mean, even the reality winner. You know, those kind of cases that were much simpler and clear. Those cases typically took almost a year and a half to get to trial. So it, it, it's inconceivable in a case with intensive documents, period, you get to trial quickly. And, of course, he listed, you know, there's already trial calendar conflicts for Trump. There's trial calendar conflicts for the lawyer. That's also a pertinent material issue. What I would say is I, I thought they could have done a much more thorough and robust presentation because it's not don't treat this like your typical case where you can just throw in your five page template of saying, look, here's all the complexities, judge, just kick it down the can mm-hmm. like you could a normal case. I mean, what they filed is something you would file in a normal case. Pretty basic, pretty simple, pretty straightforward, not too many legal issues, not too much uh, previewing of your anticipated defenses. Here, I would have gone further. I also would have used it as an excuse to present to the court some of the underlying issues like. And it concerns me a little bit that they may not even be thinking about these issues. So, like, I mean, I get the impeachment, my impeachment clause argument. I'm one of the only few, few people making that argument. Uh, I think they should make it. There's no downside to making it. But I recognize that that's not being universally suggested. But what is very commonly being suggested by lawyers who have studied this case is the Article 2 problems with the case. Uh, and they don't even mention Article 2. Uh, they seem locked into just the now the good news is they at least have woken up to the special counsel issues the that there are issues about how he per, per, proceed how he procured the indictment but there's also no recognition of the potential grand jury issues the potential venue issues they already know about some government misconduct issues and they just chose not to mention them i would have um so you know i would have used and i would have you know for example they could have gone through category by category and said, let's just look at the chance of interlocutory appeal here, Judge. Here's just some of the legal six different big constitutional mm-hmm. issues or statutory interpretation issues we're going to deal with. 
that we can it's reasonable for the court to anticipate that the 11th Circuit Supreme Court might make a want to make a ruling on this. Interlocutory appeal by itself is going to delay a trial date. So why are we going to stick a trial date that we all know we're not going to stick with that we all know we can't do that the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court may intervene in? Why not put it off to a date that affords them opportunity and time to get involved, as we know that they're probably going to do anyway, and make clear, give a little preview to the court and to the public court of public opinion that's reading these cases, uh, what what are all the big constitutional flaws? Like, they have some decent language in there about how extraordinary and unusual the case is, et cetera. But, like, they could have developed further the selective prosecution issues. They don't. They could have developed further the Fourth Amendment implications on the search warrant. They don't. They could have implemented further the Fifth Amendment grand jury clause issues. They don't. They could have gone further on the Sixth Amendment violations of attorney-client privilege. They don't even discuss it. Uh, so, you know, all of the failure to even talk about the Constitution is not a great indicator that this is going to be a top-notch defense team. Well, and I and I'm when I'm looking over all this stuff and I'm hearing your voice in the back of my head saying, you know, this is the time to speak to the public, if not only to the court. And because no. the media is going to try to spin it, right? Well, that, that, and this... force those constitution issues up there and force them to even talk about it or discuss it or circulate and, and get it out there thinking within the Republican audience, the conservative political audience, about how unconstitutional this prosecution is and, and give a little sneak preview also to the court and the court's clerks. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're going. Here's where we're going. Um, and, um, you know, I, I fear that they didn't preview it because they're not cognizant of it. Well, and knowing the way the prosecution and the media is going to spin, if it's not totally fleshed out and, and extremely well justified, they're going to say that, you know, he's gaming the system for delays because he doesn't want a trial before. And it's they haven't explained it well enough why they need it. For, to me, it was just it was so outlandish that you'd have this trial knowing the preliminary motions on the constitutionality of certain laws, the procurement of documents, etc., it's unfeasible. It shouldn't even be an expectation in the public mind, but the media is what it is. And Anderson Cooper is who he is. And, you know, these, these lawyers should have just filled out the documents and, and then, you know, a, a week long to get clearance and what they asked for. I suggested that Anderson Cooper, former CIA guy, uh, say he thinks, man, I get classified intel all the time with, with ease. <laughs> Uh, okay, so then, and how long until the judge uh, rules on this? I mean, it's not going to wait too long. The government has a chance to file a reply. I don't know if they have yet. And then the court, and the, the court will definitely issue an order before the currently calendared trial date, and I assume also before the currently calendared motion date. So that would probably mean within the next uh, ten days, you'll see a decision from the court. Mm -hmm. I, I have no doubt she'll can move the trial. The question is how far she moves it and whether she sets a date certain or not. And the risk is they can't even concede. They say, okay, move it to July twenty. What month are we going to be? July twenty twenty four. You can know why they moved it to December. You know, they would have liked to have scheduled it for 2024, but they the knew that the primaries right in the middle of it and it would look bad. So the uh, so that that's why they have a problem. So, uh, I mean, realistically, it you know, you know, scheduling it for um, I would have recommended. Here's the normal time. They included the Noriega case, which was nice. You know, I think it took almost two years to reach trial. You know, I would have said, look, let's schedule this for the summer of 2025. That's a reasonable time frame. That's a two-year time frame. That's still incredibly fast given the unique issues here. But let the court put a date on it um, and make it clear rather than indefinite. Uh, maybe they're asking for indefinite because they're giving the court the option of splitting the baby and setting a definite date, but still in 2025. I anticipate this trial won't happen until after the election. Even if the court schedules an earlier date than the next two weeks, that date itself will get moved.
there'll be an appeal on an interim judgment that will take it past the uh, 2024 election. And the pretrial motions here are unusually complex and dense, and then they're going to have huge fights over all kinds of things. All right now, if, if you see me like reaching under the table, it's because Pudge is down here. Dry, she's banging her head on my leg because she wants food, which I don't have because we ran out of food. Uh, Robert, I've realized now I haven't quite. I haven't um, done any of the rumble rants. Let's take a few minutes just to go through these. And we're going to go bottom to top because that's the order. Um, okay, let me let me read these real fast. M. Sidloy, great stream on Friday, David. Just one thing, Libs of TikTok's name is Shaya, and that's Chaya in, in Hebrew, okay, on reading right to left. Please tell me you guys will cover Tucker ruining political careers on Blaze. Ryu Kirito. Robert, you saw Mike Pence? Oh, yeah, oh. yeah. No, no surprise. <laughs> None of those people can uh, hold up to any serious scrutiny. Oh, God. Pence walked into it twice. Okay, we got Randy Edwards said, you know who else will never let you forget you are Jewish? Your Jewish mother, okay? Arkansas crime attorney. Setting in Memphis, preparing for trial next week and needed a break. What a great way to ca to break. Catching Viva Live. I bought Jenya Self for my wife and we love it. I'm going to snip and clip that and that's going to be part of the ad going forward because it's people do rave about it. It's weird. Uh, Oblividan, Mr. Barnes, do you think we will ever find out how many feds and fed assets were involved in instigating chaos on January 6th? We're not going to get a number. We know it's a lot. Uh, we'll see if Tucker gets to, you know, re-interview the guy that he interviewed while he was at Fox, that they fired him before they aired it and didn't air it. M. Menorath, Barnes, you should read the Senate discussions on the 14th. They cover this topic. Viva, my rant last week was on veterans' disability, not Virginia. I had family court uh, illegally, illegally apportioned. Uh, 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 yeah, and I have read it. And the uh, on the fourth, and what they really meant by subject to a foreign power uh, was along the lines of aristocracy, uh, d diplomats, etc. Not uh, that both of your parents had to be U.S. citizens. And then Rock Bottom 56 says, even immigrants who came here under false pretenses, General Malaise. Oh, General Malaise is English. Under Trump effects logic, wouldn't naturalized citizen parents result in natural born citizen child? In this way, children of non-citizens would still have a path to make their children citizens. We're not going to harp over this. Grotesque spearball. Wow. Cup of Sooth. Barnes is wrong. The office of the 14th said so. It did not even apply to Native Americans and no SCOTUS opinion. Native Americans were always ex exempt. Uh for a whole different provisions under the U.S. Constitution. There's a bunch of provisions that are specifically applied to members of Indian tribes. Cup of sooth, uh, uh, if the 14th Amendment did not apply to Native Americans, please explain how it applied to illegal immigrants. I'll wait. Our yeah, Indian tribes are specifically uh, put into separate provisions within the uh, untaxed Indians, et cetera. There's a, that's a whole different discussion about the nature of that. Arkansas crime attorney rumble has dropped a little. This is by way of stock price. Viva start pushing a little more. No, I do not. <laughs> no, I'm not getting sued for pushing securities. Uh, I just purchased more when it dropped because I expect it to go up. Not financial or legal advice. Get Tucker to join. I could retire. TX 47. Do we really believe the government has not done enough of a deep dive on Donald Trump's legal counsel to know whether they are worthy of security clearance? I mean, it's, 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 it's idiotic. Il Sarto. Sorry. I'm a little behind. Maybe you and your, maybe you and your people should call out these <laughs> Okay, I'm not even going to have that soundbite circulating the internet. Um, it is my responsibility. Uh, okay, it uh, both amazes and saddens me how much I wish to join CSIS I high school, in high school to uh, know how obviously despise the intel agencies and they've broken their oaths and those they sort of protect. I'm not your buddy guy. Britt Cormier, how do you pick a jury to review classified docs? Interesting question. Do they get redacted copies 
of the docs or do they all have to pass a background clearance check? Robert, how's that going to work logistically? Uh, that's where the defense has to make pre presentations to the court and the court has to make pretrial rulings on what what information will be published and what wouldn't. But the jury has to see it in order to be able to adequately make a trial on it. So the jury has to see all of it and the jury, they cannot require classification uh, requirements of. That would be a violation of the jury trial impartiality provisions. I care 22. Love your show. Learn, enjoy, and entertain. Just join Rubble, Cheryl, Gage, and we're at the Stingray. Could they be prosecuting Trump to hamstring his next presidency like they did with the Russia hoax? Robert, I'm going to ask yeah, this he, question. He walks right in. He pardons himself. So that ends that. Uh, yeah, but it's, it'll cast the same shadow that, you know, the Russia uh, hoax. He won't did. care at that stage. Uh, what is this? And verdict day will have been election day. So he'll have all the authority he wants to do it. Well, I got a question that um, Brandon Strzok brought up in a tweet yesterday. We're going to get to that before we go into the next topic. Last one. Praying hard for Trump, the judge, the Trump team, and this constant evil. Thanks, Barnes, for a little white pill. Robert, hold on. Let me break this out. Take this out. Bring this in. Robert, I've got a question for this, and it's and uh, Brandon Strzok raises an interesting point. Not this one. Here. I won't play the whole video. I'll, I'll send everybody the link so you can go watch it. Um, Earlier today, here, Donald listen. Trump put out a post on Truth Social asking the question why he was being charged under the Insurrection Act and not Joe Biden. He then deleted the post on Truth Social and replaced it with the same post, replacing the words Insurrection Act with Espionage Act. Okay, we'll pause it there. Uh, I'm going to give everybody the link. You can go watch that full video. Brandon theorizes or hypothesizes, if I can get this out of here, that uh, maybe Trump knows that they're going to go after him under the Insurrection Act so that they can then get him off the ballot because that would disqualify uh, disqualify him. That, what, that won't work either. Okay, well, just to quell everybody's concerns, logically, legally, conceivably, what could they do to keep Trump off the ballot of the presidential election? And nothing, even liberals have admitted this. Liberals have said there's no change. James Comey admitted it. There's nothing yeah, they, to keep they, him off the ballot. They also the, admitted that, that, that they can't do the, the, they're the, not the loan forgiveness. The they're not going to get states and courts to go along with him being kept off the ballot. It's just but, not, not going to happen. And so, if there's anomalies, what if what if a state says, oh, I thought I was doing the right thing legally? And, it doesn't and, and, matter. The courts will take it off, take it out. It, it's not something that will happen. So the uh, it's just it's never been something that was an achievable objective. They, I mean, they couldn't keep Eugene V. Debs off the ballot while he was in prison. So I mean, is, it's, is just, there... it's not something that's uh, practical to it, it would be it's already a misapplication of the attempts to use the 14th Amendment in that manner. Um, but even if they were to somehow indict him under the Insurrection Act, could somehow get a trial done before Election Day, somehow get him a, a conviction, somehow get the entire thing affirmed, almost all of which is uh, extremely difficult to see happening. Uh, the, the courts are still not going to strike him off the ballot. And so even if states try to, and which states are going to, there's, only, there's not enough states to do so. Again, he just needs to win a majority of electoral votes. It doesn't matter if Democrats keep him off the ballot, Democratic states, so what? If it's not on the ballot in California, so what? Not on the ballot in New York, so what? It has no impact. So the, uh, but the courts aren't going to go along with it because it's too much of an embarrassment. The Constitution is clear on the limited qualifications necessary for the ballot. They've, made, they've enforced that in every case that's ever been adjudicated. They've said we're not allowing a person to be taken off the ballot for anything that doesn't meet the qualifications, period. And they've said this over and over, whether it's McCain cases, Obama cases, left cases, right cases. The only context in which any court has said you can keep the state can keep someone off the ballot is if they admit in their qualifying papers they're not qualified. I actually had that case because I was trying to argue that that's a decision for Congress, not the courts, which, by the way, most scholars agree with. 
Um, it was Kaczynski that you know screwed around in that case, in my view. I, I got to bring that up with him next time I talk with him. The uh, now that he's no longer in the Ninth Circuit. The uh, uh, Kaczynski made the point. He goes, "Well, uh, Mr. Barnes, are you saying you know they can put Bugs Bunny on the ticket uh, on the ballot?" And you know, my response was, uh, "Your Honor, I think a lot of voters would have thought Bugs Bunny was a better candidate." Uh, this was after the 2012 election. Just so everybody knows, you're talking about Judge Kaczynski. I forget yes. his first name. Not Ted Kaczynski. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. exactly. Alex Kaczynski. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, the, he, yeah, he was on your. He was on the panel with the you at Freedom, Freedom Fest yeah. a year ago. The uh, so, but the, this is this ship has sailed, and it's not a, even liberals aren't even saying they can get this. There's a few lefties out there that are desperate for it, but uh, even liberal lawyers that hate Trump are admitting he's going to be on the ballot. That courts are not going to go. They're not even going to try to push that route. Because they want to selectively use the 14th Amendment argument for selective controversial people where they can try to set a precedent for future use. They know as soon as they go at someone like Trump with it, then it will look purely political, the indictment, and courts will look horrible. Uh, Courts don't want to keep all of a sudden leading presidential candidates off the ballot. Courts are, you know, courts can often be lazy. They can often be corrupt. They're not incorrigibly stupid. Uh, they they understand the court of public opinion, and uh, they're not going to take that past that path. They're not willing to go past that Rubicon. As I've tried to explain to people, like courts are, you you often can't get the relief or remedy you want from them. But anybody expecting them to just completely abandon everything and just say screw it, you know, in the name of defeating Trump, let's just abandon all our credibility and have half the country in an uproar, that that they're not willing to do. Uh, before we get on to the Ray Epps defamation lawsuit. I just want to bring up two more here because uh, Arkansas. Oh, we got the January 6th cases before that. Oh, yeah. Okay, my my bad. Uh, Arkansas crime attorney who is Little Rock on YouTube, who is a practicing attorney, says, I agree with Robert on the 14th. And then Amon Dean said, here's some bucks to buy food for your doggy. Seriously, though, love your podcast. Barnes is great, too. Thank you very much. No, it's not we didn't run out of money or food. I just left the dog food in my mother-in-law's freezer. And I asked my wife to get just like raw beef. So we'll just give her raw beef tonight. Okay, uh, so hold on. January 6th comes before... um, Oh, yeah. I highlighted Epps' death. Okay, Robert. Hey, Louie, another white pill. The one lucky bastard gets off. I, okay, so it, he, he was acquitted by the judge. Um, this is one of the defendants of January 6th. Basically, it's, I forget the other guy's name, but same type of, um, same type of defense. Like, I, I wasn't there to do anything. There was no pre-planning. I didn't do anything violent there. I thought I was allowed to be on, and I left when I wasn't. This one schnook, uh, in, in addition to the other one, gets acquitted. Uh, the other people, not so lucky. One of the, his co-defendants was found guilty because he was friends with the either the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. I get those mixed up all Oath the time. Keepers. Oath Keepers. Um, how is it an acquittal? Did, did this guy opt for a, a bench trial or did they make a motion to get it dismissed before it went to a jury trial? A uh, smart lawyer who read the judge. This is a very hostile judge to most January that, 6th. Yes, that's the other thing that's surprising. Uh, judge Maida. But uh, it had I, my interpretation is it's a defense lawyer that read the judge right. And so he convinced the government to dismiss all the charges except the obstruction counts. So he didn't face, you know, misdemeanor, trespass or any of those counts. So it was just was he there to obstruct the certification of the Electoral College, which was also smart because that preserved any uh, appellate issues on whether that could even apply to these circumstances. We'll get to that. You know, that's, that's the Norm Pattis Supreme Court case that uh, may go up. 
the uh so he read it and and he had a guy that was an act that was in you know musicals and an actor and he said yeah he joined oath keepers but he just thought they were a peace group there was no there was no evidence of any pre-trial communication that he engaged in there was no violence that he engaged in uh he just entered the capital that's all they had they had, he entered the capital member of the oath keepers that was it the government thought with this judge that was enough to convict him of the higher felony charge of obstruction they misread the judge because judge, the judge wasn't willing to go that far. And uh, the defense lawyer, you know, successfully made, you know, him, he had his client throw the Oath Keepers under the bus. Say, oh, I thought they were just a peacekeeping group. I thought that's what that meant. I had no idea. I'm an actor. I'm traveling around. I go down there. I, uh, you know, I just walk into Capitol. Uh, I didn't I didn't plan to obstruct anything. I didn't, I didn't know. And they didn't have any evidence to that. And so the judge drew a distinction uh, and thus gave him an acquittal. Uh, but it was a smart move of the defense team for him to one get the other charges dismissed and two uh, make it a bench trial because truth is in dc jury still would have convicted him uh given how bad the dc juries are well so it's the only second there's only been two acquittals so far both by judges in the D- in the january 6 cases robert i was reading the courthouse news article he sent me like i i don't like this either because he still said i love big brother at the end of this it's like prosecutors claim beaks was a member of the oath keepers a far-right militia group beaks meanwhile said he'd been duped into believing that the oath keepers were a peacekeeping group a contention that meta that's the judge seems to have found at least partially convincing it's like even even it was Sorry, a smart move it. by the defense defense lawyer, right? You know the judge hates oath keepers, so you throw them under the bus. Man, I'm just a nice, naive dupe. Look at how bad this organization is, judge. They fooled a sweetheart like me. <laughs> well, the yeah, he was in a play. Jesus Christ Superstar is the play that he was doing the tour on when he was arrested. And he was and I think playing- that had a lot to do with, you know, like, oh, okay, this guy's like in music. He's not sending random threats. He's not doing, you know, he didn't fit the kind of person the judge wanted to punish. And that was a good read by the defense lawyer that they recognized that. And I think he Bad played, read by the government that they uh, went along with it. Played Judas in Jesus Christ Superstar. I don't know what role Judas played in that play. I think I know what role he played in life. Um, but Robert, he said like, he gets acquitted because the best they had is that he didn't mean anything. He, you know, there was no violence, no threats, no nothing. But then I look at uh, Adam Johnson, the lectern guy, and I, I don't see much more with him except his no. theft of the of the lectern, which he never had any intention of stealing to begin with. So I mean, some people I think did as little as this I guy think and got he convicted. Pled, didn't he? He he pulled. Yes, he did. He did. Yeah. Okay. So they never faced trial, but it, it's because how hostile the DC jury pools are. But in the same week, we had that as a January sixth case. Uh, we had a ridiculous denial of bail. Uh, a guy who was accused of two misdemeanors had been saying a bunch of stupid stuff online. But he isn't being charged with any of this stupid stuff online. And so he's only being charged with misdemeanors. The judge denied him bail for misdemeanors, frankly, unheard of in the federal criminal justice mm-hmm. system, on the grounds that she was worried he might be a threat to the community. What she really means is, his, you know, his politics. But the uh, I mean, obviously, it said dumb stuff, but that should not matter for bail. The Eighth Amendment requires that it she admitted he was no flight risk. Here says, um. So this is the other case. Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi said he uh, he was ordered. Uh, his name is not Tarantino. It's Taranto to await his trial behind bars because of a string of threatening statements and actions he had made in the days leading up to his June 30 arrest, including a since deleted live stream he posted while driving to the National Institute for Standards and Technology in which he allegedly threatened to blow up his car. How do you do that? Well, okay. again, if he's prosecuted with that different story. They, obviously, there's something that they they're not telling us, including the judge, because 
He hasn't been indicted for any of those things. Only indicted on two misdemeanors. So being a big talker has no bearing on bail. I mean, the, the, the Supreme Court Salerno case, five to four, made up case because the defense lawyers are no longer even actively pursuing the case at the time, said that you could extend bail uh, to not just whether someone was a flight risk, but whether there was clear and convincing evidence under the Bail Reform Act of 1984 as to whether or not, I think Salerno was decided in 86, as to whether Rehnquist, a lot of con so-called conservatives don't care about that part of the Constitution. Uh, and the uh, as long as there are clear convincing evidence, they were a risk to the community in certain ways, the safety. Mm -hmm. But that has to be specific findings. It's supposed to be limited to when you're charged with specific dangerous crimes. It's not supposed to be a random minority report mechanism to lock people up pending trial. It's 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 what they did in Canada on the for the truckers mischief inciting mischief. Oh, we we know that this person is going to go back on social media, or they can't be controlled. They said they'll go and speak and defy the court orders. So pretrial detention and Robert. If I mean, I hope the defense lawyer pursues it to the district court, district court of appeals, and the court of uh, the Supreme Court, uh, because the, the bail abuses have been ridiculous in these DC cases, and they're just getting worse. Yeah, and then meanwhile we go and lecture, uh, or we attempt to lecture other autocrat, autocrats, tyrants, other other people for abusing the judicial system. Um, although who knows, Robert? Maybe if he appeals it, he's going to get sanctioned like Kerry Lake's lawyers, which we're going to get to in a bit. Okay, so uh, Jan six, one good news, and it's not enough of a good news because they still destroyed this person on the process. And then the more bad news, pol they're political prisoners. Period. Two and two other briefly mentioned January six cases before we get to Epps. Uh, Owen Schroyer did a plea deal. I assume the plea deal is that he's not going to do any time, but I don't know. He was charged misdemeanor trespass, as I recall. Uh, Norm Pattis is his lawyer. Uh, and then Norm Pattis is bringing a petition before the Supreme Court on one of the January 6th cases on the obstruction issues that we've discussed. So, you know, we'll uh, debrief that further when it gets closer to the Supreme Court deciding whether or not to take the case. But the issue is the misapplication of the obstruction statute. Because in my view, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals overruling the district court that dismissed on obstruction grounds, uh, you know, basically defined a protest as obstruction. You know, they, they didn't easily carve out when it could or couldn't be. And that shows how preposterous the obstruction statutes are. All right. Um, yeah, it's... Um... Has Vivek mentioned, you know, a blanket pardon for the nonviolent Jan Sixers? Has he mentioned that recently or that, that hasn't sort of... I think he reaffirmed that uh, both in the... con. He said January 6th that he thought was a product of censorship in the Tucker interview. And I think, believe he discussed it at the Turning Point presentation where, uh, I, uh, other than Trump, he had the most, uh, the strongest reaction to. I mean, it was so bad that uh, DeSantis and Scott and Haley all refuse to go to the turning point event. So it gives you an idea of that they know that the base doesn't like them at all. Robert, you, 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 another thing that you predicted way back in the day that I hope does not come to fruition, but I can definitely see how it does, is that DeSantis will have killed his uh, state political career. I think he's killing everything, slowly, surely, and steadily. It's a kamikaze campaign to end his political future. They used his ambition against him successfully. Yeah, I, I think he's got two months to get out to try to preserve his legacy. I don't and think if, he's smart enough to do it. And if he gets out and endorses Trump and gets on yeah. the bandwagon, that could preserve some goodwill. Oi, all right. Um, you got to come to Trump Jesus for contrition. And <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to be used against you later by someone. Robert. I'm going to stip and clip that right there.
Uh, okay, let's get to uh, Ray Epps, Robert. <laughs> Mind-blowing. Uh, so I read, I read through the lawsuit uh, sometime last week. Ray Epps actually had the balls to sue Fox News in Delaware. Now, uh, Cernovich actually replied to a tweet of mine where I was saying, oh, he only seems to have sued Fox in Delaware, didn't sue Darren Beatty, didn't sue Revolver, didn't sue Tucker Carlson. So none of these other people are now parties to the suit who could avail themselves to their procedural litigious rights in the suit. He only sued Fox News and only sued it in Delaware. Cernovich, tell me if he's right, uh, said uh, that Delaware does not have strong anti-slap suits or anti-slap legislation, and also that Fox News is the only one that might bend over pay Ray Epps to make it go away, and thus, I don't know, engage in political money laundering. The lawsuit, nobody needs to read it, but you can, I'll, I'll, I'll snip and clip that, but basically says uh, Fox News, through Tucker Carlson, through, I think, Laura Ingram, defamed Ray Epps by saying or suggesting that he was a federal agent there as a paid or a agent provocateur, as an agent to stir up shit. Um, whether or not that's a statement of opinion based on the facts of he's there on camera saying we need to go into the Capitol, that'll be a legal argument. When they call him an agent provocateur or a Fed, is, it a, is that a statement of opinion based on the facts which are undeniable, or is that a statement of facts susceptible of defamation? Sued on defamation and false light. I guess Delaware has a false light uh, provision of law. False light is similar to defamation in that it causes personal harm, but defamation is based on more reputational damage. False light is not the same thing as public disclosure of a private fact, which would mean the fact is true, but it does damage by being disclosed. Um, what did I miss? What's your take? Uh, is this a strategic settle this lawsuit, launder some money, line the coffers of Ray Epps so that he can run off into the into the moonlight with a piggy bank to, to live off of? Is Fox News a deep state asset? Are they going to fight this properly or are they going to just bend over and be the tool to the administrative state anti-Trumpers that they seem to be proving themselves to be? What's your take? So, I mean, substantively, I don't think there's a strong case for Epps. I mean, especially if the Delaware courts apply any consistency, which is still an open question, because these are the same Delaware courts that said Candace Owens couldn't sue because everything was protected opinion. So are they going to apply the same standards when it applies to these clearly opinion statements? They're opinion statements based on disclosed facts. So if you make an opinion statement based on undisclosed facts, then you can claim the undisclosed facts are a lie. But if you disclose the facts and then give your opinion, that's classic constitutionally protected opinion about someone who may consider himself an involuntary public figure, but a public figure nevertheless under the circumstances. So I don't think the private uh, figure standards would likely or probably apply especially because he himself has availed himself of media and press coverage. So the uh, it, before some of these statements that he's complaining of were made, I think procedurally it's correct that he's suing in Delaware to avoid the anti-slap laws that might apply if he were to sue Darren Beatty or the revolver or to sue uh, Tucker Carlson. It is also probably the case that he's suing uh, your analysis. I think is correct that he's avoiding those individuals who may have an independent interest in litigating the case may not be insured by the same set of entities, uh, may reject that insurance for the purposes of litigating the case, uh, may want to uh, proceed into discovery and information he did, would not want to divulge or disclose as a pr process of the case. Um, and so then the only question is why? Uh, and the given it's a, it appears to be a weak case, why is he pursuing it? And the two possibilities that I see, 
are either everybody sees Fox as weak at the moment or Fox is insurer is weak at the moment. They're writing huge, ridiculous checks to some uh, preposterous claims. Not only the ludicrous amount paid to Dominion, over seven hundred million, but then they turn around and paying somebody who's you know who's suing over Tucker on a ridiculous claim, and they pay that out like twelve million or some preposterous amount. So right now they're they they appear to be screaming, "We're a blank check, please sue us." Um, that could be part of it, or as you note, it could all just be one big uh, money laundering effort to get him money without it looking like uh, Fox is part of a scheme to cover up what took place in January 6th by paying him directly as some sort of consultant. Instead, they pay him because they had to because they were sued. Um, it's a very creative mechanism of money laundering, but it's not one you can rule out in these circumstances. Uh, the question I had, Robert, uh, in so far, they're not named defendants, but they're very much interested parties. Could Darren Beatty and Tucker Carlson not, I don't know if the term is implead in the United States. Can they not ask to, to join this lawsuit? No, they can't. There's no way that they can get involved. I mean, it's, it's, it's like, is it not defamatory to them to have a guy sue alleging that he defamed, that they defamed? Him? All, court, all court pleadings are immune from suit. So you can't sue based on anything that happened and were said in court. So he can't intervene. He can't request to be an amicus, like, you know, submit, submit filings. Eh. Uh, is it is, now is Fox News potentially that dirty that they are so anti-Trumper that they would participate in quelling what was obviously it's not a conspiracy. Ray Epps is on video saying, I don't even want to say what I'm going to what we have to do because I'll get arrested for it. And then they say and then he says, we need to go into the Capitol. They call him a Fed there. He's there the day of saying this is where we're going. This is where our problems lie. He's there breaching a fence violently. Whether or not he's pushing it and doing violence, he's there partaking in the violence and breaching, going into a restricted area. That's all on video. Um, is, is Fox potentially that much of a never-Trumper that they would partake in some scheme to try to rehabilitate Ray Epps? If, if they settle at all, then, then yes. Okay. That's the reasonable inference. I mean, the, uh, the, their behavior has made no sense. I mean, this is the same Fox that gave away their key moneymaker in Tucker Carlson. And if they had any doubts about its impact, they have lost more than half of their young primetime audience. And not just during Tucker's time slot, during every time primetime time slot. So, I mean, you, you, you multiply that money-wise, it's more, it should be impact more than half of their advertising revenue. I mean, that was, it was an insane action. And they know that and yet have taken no action to remedy it. So, uh, you know, the people running Fox are incompetent, incapable. The second generation, Murdoch always relied upon Roger Ailes to keep the political antenna afoot. And even Ailes was often behind the, the, the times on a range of topics and subjects, but not nearly as far behind as Rupert Murdoch is and nowhere near uh, where his idiot kids are. All right. Um, good. I feel better in my assessment. It, it does not make any sense. Um, and if this settles, and if it settles quickly for a sum undisclosed, holy crab apples, Fox will be beyond uh, irrelevant to me. Uh, but yet one more from Arkansas crime attorney. Looks politically motivated, Robert. I agree with you in almost all cases, but not here. Now, I don't remember what that was for exactly. All right, um, Robert, you, you send me gerrymandering cases 
I immediately tune out. I read about a page and a half in. I don't understand. I mean, they all seem to like they all seem to be one and the same. We're arguing over how we subdivide the electoral district for the upcoming elections. I I did we ever did you ever explain what gerrymandering means or how not know what it means, but how it came to be the term? Like, why is it called gerrymandering? Oh, that I used to know, but that I don't remember. <laughs> all right. And now I get I immediately shut off, Robert. This is another case of of unfair contested redistricting coming out of New York. I stopped reading after two pages. Um, tell people why they should care. <laughs> so uh, what happened in so in 2014, uh, New York voters voted to change their constitution so that the legislature no longer did the redistricting each uh, 10 years. So the way it works, once the census does a census every 10 years, each state, le- usually each state legislature, but in these days, increasingly independent commissions, redistrict their seats, state house seats, state senate seats, uh, city council, county commission, uh, and congressional seats. From a federal perspective, the big one is the congressional seats, the house seats. And what happened is the New York was irritated at all the redistricting fights coming out of the New York state legislature. So the people said, screw it, we're just going to have an independent commission do it. And the way it worked is an independent commission was bipartisan. It would propose a map. If they couldn't agree on the map, then uh, or they sent it to the legislature for an approval process. And if there has to be yes or no, and if that doesn't work, then you do a second map. And if that doesn't work, then the legislature in certain instances could try to maybe take control. So, but the first time this was going to be tested was after 2020. They they came up with a first map that the legislature rejected. They wouldn't come up with a second map. And so the legislature said, screw it, we're going to do our own map. And the and they wrote, they changed the laws again, presuming they could just override the, their own state constitution. Court stepped in and said, no, you can't override the constitution. So I guess in the interim, since we're on the eve of the 22 elections, the court will draw the map. That map produced a Republican landslide in 2022. And so Democrats have been desperate to get that map set aside ever since. So they relitigated the issue and they went up to the equivalent of New York's highest court, the Court of Appeals, because the Supreme Court of New York is called the trial court there. And in fact, it's at every level the system's called Supreme Court. It'll be Supreme Court or Supreme Court, comma, Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals, 4 3 split decision, uh, most of the issues being who had standing to sue and the rest. But the majority said, yeah, they have a right to sue and said, look, the way this is supposed to work is a mandamus action, which is when a government agent has a non-discretionary mandatory duty to do something and isn't doing it, you can go to the court that says, issue a writ of mandamus, that they uh, do so immediately. And the argument was the independent commission was obligated under the New York state constitution to submit a second map that it never had. And by the four to three decision, the court agreed and issued the writ of mandamus saying, you got to issue a second map. And so that's all that happened. The concern is that the new map, even though it's supposed to be a bipartisan commission, will be less favorable to Republicans than it was before. But we'll have to see how all that shakes out. I think as a decision, I don't really disagree with the decision. I do think the independent commission failed to do its duty. And now I was going to pull up the duty. But instead, I got an email in real time, Robert. I don't know if I can quote the source. Someone who sends me some stuff says, Dear Viva, gerrymandering is a team for redistricting done in Massachusetts when Elbridge Jerry was governor. Elbridge, Elbridge Hmm. Jerry. So, oh, yeah, okay. So, Jerry. So, because he did it or they screwed him? Uh, 
hold on, I'm going to go to the Wikipedia link. It says, in representative democracies, gerrymandering originally is the political manipulation of electoral districts, yada, yada, yada. Etymology. Originally gerrymandered, the name was Jerry, and the animal salamander was used for the first time in the Boston Gazette. Yada, yada. This was created in reaction to the redrawing of Massachusetts Senate election districts under Governor Elbridge Jerry, later Vice President of the United States. Jerry, who personally disapproved of the practice, practice signed a bill that redistricted Massachusetts for the benefit of the Democratic-Republican Party. When mapped, one of the contorted districts in the Boston area was said to resemble a mythical sal mythological salamander. Appearing uh -huh. with the term and helping spread and sustain its popularity was a political cartoon depicting... Uh, uh, okay. He did further, it. He further did proof, it. everybody, at uh, FeverBarnsLaw.locals.com is above average. Yeah, that's uh, this is uh, one of my trusty... Uh, sends me very interesting stuff to read. Um, not everybody has my email address. Uh, okay, so now, uh, okay, it's it's cool. It's another one of those stories. I mean, the, the gerrymandering. It's it's funny. I don't know how you ever redistrict without it screwing somebody. I, is there not a way just to not redistrict? Just agree on what's a fair way to do it randomly and not uh, based on on. Well, that's on, what these commissions kind of are. Yeah. They're but what you could do is you could have statewide elections and things like that. <laughs> and that might, and, and just, you know, whoever gets so many votes then gets, get seated, you know, top nine vote getters get, get seats. For example, you had nine seats, you could do it, but it's up to each state how they do it. And they don't like that because they love their gerrymandering power. <laughs> oh, yep. That is okay. But speaking of elections, some big news out of Arizona. So hold on. I, maybe I have different news. I think I might have read something different than was it about the lawyers being sanctioned for $122,000 in legal? Oh, no, not because I think that's the federal court case that's ongoing where they're trying to go after Dershowitz and all yeah, that. Yeah, the Dershowitz has to pay like he's, he's on the hook solidarity for like 12400 or something. Yeah, I, it, that's it's a mistake for them to whack Dershowitz. I think that's going to go up on appeal. And I think it's going to get overturned. They would have kept Dershowitz out. They probably could have got away with it. But that court is so egotistical, it can't help itself. A lot of federal courts in Arizona that way. I've had the distinct displeasure being in many federal courts in Arizona and not being very fond of any of those federal courts, frankly, that I've experienced. I've got them overturned repeatedly, though, uh, to my great privilege and pleasure, but the uh, including in some real big cases. But the uh, uh, the no, it's Carrie Lake has petitioned to transfer her case directly to the Arizona Supreme Court. And the judge finally issued a decision in the attorney general race and Abe Hamada race as well. OK, so um, let's start with the P Carrie Lake petitioning. What, 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 what is the purpose of that to skip uh, a skip a certain litigation process, expedite it to the highest court of the land of yeah, the uh, Arizona land? And the, the Court of Appeals was doing weird stuff. They were transferring it from one Court of Appeals to another Court of Appeals. So Kerry Lake's team was like, this is getting squirrely. So they went right to the Arizona Supreme Court and said, look, we got big issues that have never been addressed. We have uh, by the Arizona Supreme Court. Uh, we This is still concerning the election. Let's get this cleaned up and wrapped up quicker rather than later. Uh, you know, go ahead and take it. You, you know, you might as well. And then decide one way or the other how we're going to decide. And they focused on the all the issues that the trial court had not addressed, including the new evidence, what the new evidence meant and didn't mean. And in particular, I thought what was really smart about her petition was highlighting the signature process and in I think correctly interpreting what the trial court did, rather than get caught in the weeds of a factually dense issue that court supreme high appellate courts hate to deal with, said, look, what the district trial court really did was say that whether or not 
uh, the statute's requirement that the election officials compare signature, signatures, is that subject to judicial review or not? Because the court said, no, it's not even subject to judicial review. I think that's a correct interpretation of what the court did. That thereby presents a neat and narrow legal issue for the Arizona Supreme Court to decide. Does a court have authority to interpret and enforce the meaning of the word compare in signatures? Or is it so vague and so obscure that it means nothing and there's no judicial review even capable of the executive branch's obligations in that respect? I think that's their best legal issue. I think it's a nice, narrow, neat legal issue. And clearly, quite frankly, the judge is wrong because they compare signatures all the time in a range of other contexts. So the idea of this is beyond judicial review, beyond judicial understanding of what the statute means, contradicts a long line and litany of cases, including those in Arizona courts. So the uh, compare, everybody knows what compare means. It means more than two seconds. I mean, that's well, what it means. It, it means do what they did in California for uh, that that district. What was his name? The, it was a French name. Gascon. Gascon. Do it. Uh, do it for what they did for um, what's his, the other one there? Newsom. Like they they disqualified more than 0.02% of the ballots for whatever the reason. And even if you only went by the signature verification with Gascon, it was nine thousand of it was, it was it was like a couple of percent, which would have been more than enough in Carrie Lake's case. Yeah, the wood the woodpecker is what the lawyer called it. You know, just like tick tick tick. And yeah, hundred percent approval. Abe Hamada, the judge who had to issue an order on Friday, finally did, though without much explanation as to what his order was. Well, I said it's, it's coming Monday. It's coming Monday. Apparently, there was a fire, Robert. There's a, literally a fire that prevented the judge from issuing the uh, motivated ruling. Get the details tomorrow. Abe Hamada, he was asking for a retrial on his unsuccessful first trial to, oh, I don't know if it was overturned, but rather properly count. He had a, a marginal differential between victory and loss. Uh, he lost. The judge said, you haven't proven your case. I sort of forget the details of Abe's um, original contest. The issue is the a bunch of provisional ballots that weren't properly counted uh, that should have been. I think it was over 8,000 that if he just had 200, I think 257 or more of those provisional ballots being counted in his favor, he wins and he won the election. And the judge waited until the last possible minute to issue a ruling. And basically, the judge sitting there saying, how do I screw Hamad? How do I screw him? I wait. Uh, that apparently was the main excuse. Um, has It said it was, man, it's a close, close call, but I got to screw the outsider. Sorry. You know, there's th your typical judge, sadly, in America. Um, and it's, and I guess we'll have a written ruling at some point. Hamad, of course, is going to appeal it. The It's clear Hamad, in my view, won, and, and they stole it from him. And so the it's like all these ridiculous claims where they're pursuing Trump on having electors and going through the constitutional process that he was entitled to to legally contest who won the election. All the uh, all the media hit pieces all say he was trying to falsely claim that he was elected. Uh, you disagree with whether he you know, the media, you disagree with whether he uh, won, but he wasn't falsely claiming anything. He believed he won and the objective facts would support it. No, as Tucker Carlson pointed out to Nikki Haley's embarrassment. He had, Tucker kept hammering. He goes, 81 million, 81 million. Do you think Joe Biden got 81 million votes when Barack Obama couldn't get that many votes? 81 million? Do you really Robert, think it? Population growth. The population has grown since <laughs> Obama. There was growth though, right? In, in mystical, mythical, miraculous <laughs> ballots that came in on election night or afterwards. So, uh, but you know, the, so Hamid is going to challenge that all the way through the process. The Arizona Democratic illegally elected attorney general 
is busy trying to figure out ways to prosecute Trump too. You know that that that's what's going on in crazy kooky Arizona. Katie Hobbs is you know has been has been a complete failure as governor. Uh, Carrie Lake is still one of the most popular candidates to potentially be vice presidential candidate. Now up there with Byron Donalds and Vivek as the most uh, popular candidates amongst Trump's base to potentially be vice president. Uh, DeSantis is busy sinking. Uh, I made a joke comparison. I won't make it again because probably I need to probably make more time. Tragedy plus time equals comedy is what Woody <laughs> Allen instructed. So I'll stick with it. But the uh, uh, it was a funny meme though. It's I just but I have a dark sense of humor. The uh, but you know the uh, Carrie Lake's doing a good job pursuing this case. Make the Arizona Supreme Court make a decision. At least the Arizona Supreme Court should say it's judicially reviewable, even if they don't re- uh, reinstate her, which is what should be the case. And you know create a, a retrial. Uh, or uh, uh, an election, uh, a runoff, or a new election, if you will, uh, then if at a minimum establish that courts do in fact have the power to enforce the law governing signature review processes, uh, I hope they at least do that. She's done more work for election integrity than anybody in the last several decades, so credit to Carrie Lake for continuing to pursue the case uh, all the way through. Um, yeah, Hamadet was attorney general that he was running for, and... Um... Yeah, he should be. He was, The Arizona voters voted for him. And the, he was wrongfully denied the office. Now, before I forget, actually, I, I consistently forget. Everybody hit the uh, the little plus button on on Rumble on the bottom, the thumbs up. And if you haven't already joined or subscribed, subscribe on on Rumble. And also, I just put the link in there to come to visit us on Locals after we're done here because we're going to be done here soon. Um, Ohio won. Okay. Speaking uh, of election reforms. You're going to have to do this one beginning to end, Robert, and I'll ask you questions as you go. Yeah, we've had people continually ask about this, and some people emailed some stuff. I have a simple answer on this. Uh, Vote no. Now, I understand why there's a yes campaign. The pro-life community is worried that if an abortion amendment is put on the Ohio Constitution, that a majority of voters will vote for something that is less restrictive than its current Ohio law. That is not an excuse to try to change the rules to impose a supermajority requirement and make initiatives harder to obtain. You know, giving more power to the legislature is not the answer. I'm a big fan of initiatives and direct voting. So I think the 50% rule plus one a rule, majority vote rule, actually, not 50%, that the majority vote rule uh, is should stay in place, is my take. I mean, I mean if you vote yes for Ohio 1, you're going to require future amendments get 60% or more support. And more significantly, you're going to require at least 5% signatures to get past an initiative, which will make initiatives very hard to get through. But hold so on. If you I... want to, and all you're really doing, you're saying, we the people want less power. We want to give more power to the legislature and the governor. Ask yourself if that's a good decision. You might have to back it up and you might have the curse of knowledge here. Ohio is proposing an amendment. To its, to its constitution called Ohio one up for elect up for a vote, I believe first week of August. And it's an amendment to the constitution that would, uh, let me, that would, that would require future amendments. I always love these. This amendment can pass by majority, but it says all future amendments have to pass by 60% or more and all few, or they fail to amend. And they can only get even on the ballot for people to even get a chance to vote on them. If we increase the number of signatures they have to get to 5% of the gubernatorial electoral vote, which is going to make it very difficult to get in or very expensive, 
the only initiatives that will get through are big corporate, big money backed initiatives that, and, and by the way, that won't prevent the abortion one from being presented on the ballot. So the pro-life community is mistaken on that, but they think they, they think it's easier for them to get 41% of the vote than 51% of the vote. Honestly, that should tell the pro-life community in Ohio that you need to do a better job persuading people, not let's rig the rules. So as long as we control the legislature or the governor's branch, we can keep our policies in place, even if we know 59% of our fellow citizens don't agree with us. All right. And there's going to be another quick one before we get to the good ones, which is um, Steve Bannon and Elon Musk. Oh, my goodness. You're going to tell me. I, I don't know how you think about the, the Twitter uh, lawyer retainer agreement change at the eve of the closing, but I think I know where you're going to go with it. Um, Mississippi, Robert, I'm, I'm not sure I fully understand this one. I think I understand the dynamics, but not necessarily. Uh, there's a predominantly 70% black district in Mississippi where they've elected black judges, black uh, law enforcement. And the allegation is that that the funds or the financing of these aspects of justice and law enforcement are determined by uh, what a, a, a part of government that is not in the district that elected these these black judges, black officers, and that because of racism, they're systematically deciding to underfund this particular district for for law enforcement for judicial resources. Is that sort of the the gist of this uh, Mississippi case? Yeah. So it's uh, and the the additional component is that it's Hines County, Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I always forget whether Johnny Cash in his song going to Jackson. I think he's talking about Jackson, Tennessee, not Jackson, Mississippi. But the it's always possible he's talking about Jackson, Mississippi. Great song uh, with uh, uh, him and his wife that they sing together. June Carter Cash from the great Carter family of uh, East Tennessee and elsewhere. Uh, great folk singing tradition that blended into uh, country music. Uh, and so what's been happening is Jackson's 70, Hines County is 70% black in terms of voting population. They've been voting in black judges, black prosecutors, black police. Now, what else is Jackson, Mississippi? It's the state capital. So the politicians in the state capital are unhappy about being governed uh, by uh, a black Democratic majority. So they've been doing two things. They've been squeezing the funds available to the entire criminal justice process, not giving them new judges, not giving them other means of remedy and relief, uh, you know, having their criminal dockets being backlogged, et cetera. But their second new scheme was to create a capital improvement district that was going to say, well, really, this is all part of the capital and we're going to include all the suburbs over here and we're going to create a 70 percent white district. And now this is who's going to govern. Uh, the area around the Capitol that's now going to be overextended into basically all the white areas of Hines County and and, and outside Hines County and especially the Capitol. And now we're going to give all that power to new judges. We're going to give that power to new cops. Um, I'm not in favor of these kind of ideas in general. I mean, it's like Nancy Pelosi's little Capitol Police. Let's extend it to everywhere we could claim jurisdiction. And that's going to be the whole country ultimately because we have to protect members of Congress who represent the entire country, right? Uh, similar kind of scheme. And the NAACP has sued. The Biden administration has intervened on behalf of the NAACP on the grounds it violates the 14th Amendment because it's intended to harm the black community in Hines County and preclude them from exercising the political power to which they are lawfully entitled to under Mississippi law. And so I think they're right. Uh, I, I, I'm not in favor of what Mississippi is trying to do. Now, this does reflect a broader concern which is uh, so many state capitals are in jurisdictions where the state is conservative 
and the and the capital is liberal. I think that is an issue for lawsuits, for venue and things like that. And I think we should re-examine that. It's a problem with the District of Columbia on a national level. It's a problem with the uh, in all of these states. Uh, I mean, including in Florida with Tallahassee, uh, Georgia with it, Fulton County with Atlanta, uh, uh, here Jack in Mississippi with Jackson. So the uh, you know they should just move the state capital in my view in many of these cases, or at least change the venue provisions so that you don't have all liberal juries deciding issues of of state law about you know against the conservatives. But I think it appears they were just you know to try to interfere with local policing, local judges. Uh, that is, uh, I have a problem with, and it, and you know, the racial history of Mississippi needs no, uh, you know, re -re repetition. My brother and I once saw Mississippi burning. We went to a movie theater. It was the cheap movie theater, uh, and we didn't calculate the audience, so we showed up and we were the only white guys in the entire audience. And I remember just, you know, the in, in case you know people got, uh, you know, this was very dramatic. What's in there? And I was like, I'm a good white guy. Good, good, good white guy. You know, the, uh, uh, good, 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 good honky. Just the, so you uh, just plus he didn't show up in a Dukes of Hazard card. Don't, 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 don't let me. That's a, to, to, no, no bueno. Uh, everybody was cool as things turned out. But the uh, I'll, I'll never forget that. The, I also once walked into school days, the, the D-A-Z-E, one of the early, uh, and I walked into it by accident. I was trying to go into another movie theater. And I go in, I sit down, I sit down like in the middle, because I like those middle seats where you get the whole view. And then I look, and then I realize, oh, I'm in the wrong movie. And then I realize it's a whole black audience. I'm like, I'm gonna look like an idiot if I get up and walk out. <laughs> They're gonna think, oh, look at that guy. I was like, I'm just gonna have to sit here and watch it. That's what I did. It's like it reminds me of that scene in Road Trip where they go to the fraternity and they're sitting there. It's like you realize this is an all black fraternity, and the other guy's like, I don't see things like that. Um, one a movie that has aged particularly well. Uh, okay, very fascinating. Now, Robert. Now we're gonna get to. Lawyers are bad people. <laughs> I don't know enough about the Steve Bannon underlying part of the case. Steve Bannon uh, racked up allegedly $850,000 in legal fees. I suspect this was in the context of the uh, contempt, uh, contempt of Congress uh, case. Ran up a, a bill of 850, or uh, that is to say his lawyers charged him $850,000. Apparently, according to the judge's ruling, he didn't contest it or object to it in time. Paid 300 and some odd thousand, 380,000, and uh, they sued. Judge says, no, you got to pay it. You didn't object to the billing at the time. And it was reasonable legal services. So now he's got to pay close to $500,000. He's got a new law firm. I presume he's paying them who say they're going to appeal the decision because it's clearly wrong. I mean, there are you have the same mechanisms in the states that you have in, 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 in Quebec, where if you get a, an invoice, you have a certain period of time within which you can contest it. And there's a process set up. But if you don't and you sit there and you let them accumulate and then, oh, you realize they're up to 800000 you don't want to pay it, uh, too late, so, you know, so sad. I don't know any details that, that uh, above and beyond that. Does Steve Bannon have any legitimate excuse here? Is there outrageous like after billing or is this just Bannon not paying attention to the legal fees as they're coming in? The, the two major problems with the court's decision, which were, were uh, she, the judge issued partial summary judgment a uh, New York state court proceeding without any discovery being allowed is it's a complete misapplication of the account stated doctrine in America. So the account stated claim is that when you have an account, the other party accepts that they have that account and that the amount stated has been accepted or agreed to as being due and owing by either ex 
express language or by implication. The implication provisions have been limited. It's supposed to be a recurring creditor-debtor relationship. So this is supposed to be your bank statement. This is supposed to be a relationship between you send me something, I review it, check, come back. It is not supposed to apply to every other contract in America. It should not be used for doctors. It should not be used for lawyers. It should not be used for accountants, but they misuse it and abuse it. And of course, judges love to help lawyers rack up fees if they're on the political right side of the equation uh, or if the defendant's on the wrong political side of the equation. And they greenlight things they're not supposed to. So in an account stated case, you're supposed to prove as a plaintiff undisputed liability. It's basically account stated supposed to be equal to a settlement agreement. And the only time that you getting an invoice and not objecting to it constitutes a settlement agreement is when there is a undisputed uh, pattern, custom and practice of a debtor creditor relationship like a bank statement. So you get a bank statement and something in there is taken out that shouldn't have been and you don't call the bank on it. There you're stuck because you're part of it's a recurrent debtor credit relationship. That is not the case with a lawyer and client. It's not the case with a doctor and patient. Not the case with an accountant and client. And these misuse and abuse of account stated doctrines. Other courts in now New York is horrible. New York comes up with every excuse in the world to help lawyers. They still have retention file doctrines where you can continue to hold a file, uh, including of the client's own information uh, from a new lawyer. Uh, or from the client, uh, unless they they pay the lawyer's demand, a financial demand. It, mm-hmm. It's hijacking, extortion. It's stolen property is what it really is. Every Almost every other court in America has rejected it. But New York courts are so incorrigibly corrupt. And so in the pockets of lawyers that they make ridiculous rulings in favor of lawyers, particularly if they're politically protected. So uh, Bannon has robust appellate rights, be, uh, appeal issues present. I don't know how well his trial counsel raised these issues. The trial court would make it sound like it was poorly presented. You never know whether that's true or not. Um, But he has, one, he should have been allowed to challenge the underlying liability. Second, and and what's the underlying liability? In this context, uh, ethically, as we'll get into the Musk case, you as a lawyer have to prove that your fees are ethically charged, consistent to your fiduciary obligation, and reasonably incurred. And in the quantum merit context, context conferred real value upon your client the last reason is why i've never been sued for on a legal fee dispute ever because i always tell them i get occasionally i'll get a client that will want to weasel out of something and you know you, you don't always get the, the best clients in the world uh i've had above average clients but a couple of, you know scheme through the process that are always trying to figure out a way to save an extra buck and i remind them okay i was like look we'll just waive the contract provision and we'll go and we'll do quantum merit let me explain to you all the value i conferred on you and how the court will see it. And like, well, and, and but you're going to owe me money. I'm not going to owe you a refund. You're going to owe me money by the time that analysis is done because that's pretty universal. But that's what they're supposed to prove. They didn't prove any of those things. They didn't prove their fees were reasonable. They didn't prove that they, that they completely uh, honored their ethical and fiduciary obligations. They didn't prove that there was any uh, of what value they provided to Bain. And it's not obvious they provided any value, quite frankly, given the outcome of a lot of these cases. But for being salvaged and saved by a pardon, the rest of the cases, they failed to achieve any benefit on that I could witness. Uh, there were conflict of interest issues because there were going to be witnesses in some of the proceedings. There are legal malpractice issues uh, because it appears they gave them bad advice. 
So he can also challenge them like any settlement agreement you can challenge on mistake, you know, mutual mistake, uh, on fraud, uh, on all of those other grounds. So the court just assumed that liability couldn't be contested because this was an account stated case when it's not an account stated case. They didn't have a recurrent creditor debtor relationship. That's not the nature here. There, uh, and the, my favorite part of the decision was the judge said, quote, uh, the, he doesn't dispute that he received the documents. And then quotes him saying, I never personally received the documents. And the judge is like, well, never personally received doesn't mean never received. In what world is that? But what it was a ludicrous also, ruling. It, it was for summary judgments. Had, had Bannon or was he able to rely on any documents in defense? Or was it just basically it was take pure summary, uh, a summary judgment where uh, he presented no discovery was allowed and his basic affidavit was ignored? Uh, the, the, I mean, the, the, the affidavit saying, look, I didn't receive this. I didn't approve this. Well, that, I, that's I, a, yeah, I, I never had time to object because I never personally received it. And the judge like, well, you didn't dollars. say you didn't receive it, receive it. You said didn't personally. What is that? That's preposterous. So it's a, it, it is a preposterous ruling. I just don't know how good his lawyers are. Uh, I don't, I don't think these lawyers that overbuild him, uh, were any good, but to be honest, this is part of a Bain and recurrent issue of bad personnel decisions. So the, uh, I mean, Milo, Milo is a guy he shouldn't have promoted. Uh, he, he was early, even before the election, promoting some people connected to Dominion that were nuts. Uh, the, uh, you know, he's right now promoting, he's been promoting for years now, Naomi Wolf. Naomi, Naomi Wolf is out there pretending that she's Brooke Jackson uh, and that, you know, she's going to bring one of the first False Claims Act claims concerning Fiverr. How, how she makes this stuff up is beyond me. I, I saw her do it in other contexts. She's going to be the first one to bring FOIA challenges after we've been bringing, you know, the, after those FOIA suits have been brought. She's the first one to challenge the uh, authority of the FDA to do this while our lawsuit for Robert Kennedy and CHD was already pending or with Robert Kennedy was already pending. So, I mean, she may, but, you know, he does this all the time. He have about two thirds, well, I'll say 50 50. Half the time you meet really interesting people that Bannon promotes, and half the time they're idiots. And now you see why he makes, why he was not a good advisor about personnel. Yeah, Trump Sessions will be a great attorney general. Worst possible place to put Sessions. The, uh, uh, you know, God bless his soul, but hopefully all of these problems will wake him up that he needs to get a little bit better, uh, just like his former boss, with who he hires for staff. Well, now I'm thinking uh, which which I, I think I know which 50-50 I go on because B- Bannon hasn't promoted me, but I've been on the show back in the trucker convoy a lot. And I, I know he likes me, but, uh, and Naomi and I like Steve, I think he's a brilliant architect, brilliant idea, but he makes often he promotes some deep the people he shouldn't promote. Number one, number two, quit hiring bad lawyers and you won't get stuck with big fees. 800,000 bucks for a conviction. And, uh, yeah. uh not, and not that I, not to be judgmental. And, and very I know easy. they weren't doing good work on, on the federal case. Because I consulted with other co-defendants in that case, you know, was never their lawyer, but there was basic stuff his lawyers weren't doing that should have been done. And, and I, we talked about it at the time. Like, there was no reason to believe these lawyers were, he just kept hiring these conventional guys. It's like, why do you keep hiring? I mean, you know, just, but this is a guy who got taken in by Mueller. You know, again, a Bannon, brilliant guy, brilliant architect, brilliant ideas, great advocate. Uh, this is an area of weakness that he happens to share with his former boss named President Trump that really could benefit from upgrading. And I'm going to say this, it's, it's, it's always easy for other people to criticize the work of others, or especially the contractors that came before them. 
uh, sticker shock when I saw the amount. When they said that he had to pay five hundred thousand above and beyond the three eighty. What's, what's the value? I mean, I mean, uh, if, if I would be embarrassed to ever sue a client if I didn't achieve anything of value for that client. Now, to be frank, that's never happened to me. But you know, I mean, I mean, I've always even in cases where we don't get the outcome we want, I achieve something. I get something better than the average schmuck. But to sue somebody for half a mil after delivering absolutely nothing of benefit, you got to be kidding me. I'm clipping that, Robert. Wonderful. All right. Now, speaking of, speaking of asking for something for nothing, Robert. Uh, so the, 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 I don't know the names of the law firm. You'll, you'll, you'll mention the names. But in the context of the closing transaction, Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, you have law firms that organize the, the transaction, the merger, the, 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 the closing documents, the due diligence, yada, yada, yada. This law firm, our, our community pointed out, or someone pointed out that this law firm is known for making, uh, what do they call them? Not bonus payments, but um, uh, performance bonuses. Like, you know, we do a big deal. You get, you get a percentage of the deal. Bottom line, this law firm was working and billing in the orders of the millions. Like they had billed uh, Twitter $18 million for this uh, due diligence merger acquisition with Elon Musk. On the eve, and I might be getting some of the timeline mixed up, but I don't think I am because I think the timeline goes down to hours. They, through Vijay God, who I'm not naming to be mean, just she's named in the lawsuit, uh, they modify their retainer agreement, their legal contract agreement between Twitter and this law firm to say, we're going to pay you $90 million. Uh, it includes the $18 million that you've already billed for this, this, this transaction. And we're going to do this on the eve of the closing. And we're going to rush the wire out uh, bef- like within hours before the closing or hours before Vijay God was ultimately fired from Twitter. $90 million. Now, it's ex-corporation Elon, Elon's company that's suing. Uh, now I'm blanking out. He's suing the law firm or is he suing the law firm? Is he suing Twitter? No, hold on. He's suing the, the geez Louise. He's suing the law firm, correct? Yeah. Just total brain fart for a second. Um, I lo- the term he was using... I forget, it was a lame duck fiduciary, but basically accusing the law firm of bilking the company that he's going to acquire of a, of a massively unwarranted legal fee. And it doesn't harm anybody except for Elon Musk. And you have these saboteurs or you know uh, executives who are supposed to have a fiduciary obligation to the company agreeing to modify the retainer agreement to just pay out $90 million, knowing it comes out of Twitter, which is going to be bought by Elon as of midnight, and he's going to be $90 million poor, and this law firm's going to be $90 million richer. Uh, Robert, is, it a, is, this a, is this a legitimate practice? <laughs> uh, it's it's, it's Wachtel, one of the most prominent law firms in America. Uh, it tells you how big corporate firms really operate. I mean, they're issuing invoices with like blank billing, with, with what's called block billing, where it's like 10 hours, did work. That's all it said. <laughs> you know, they had an hourly billing agreement. How you run up, 18 million hourly billing in a month or two is by itself preposterous. This wasn't that complicated or complex of a case. 18 million in a month or two? What a crock. Uh, you know, it's what they're used to. And what they what it is is and, and Twitter had an agreement with Musk that a bunch of last minute expenses would not be approved without his approval. And they just decided what it was is the corporate staff there, the general counsel. Uh, the late the lady you mentioned is the one that was on Joe Rogan that tried mm-hmm. with Tim Pool that with Jack Dorsey that you know tried to lie and cover up all the Twitter censorship, clear you know opposed the you know hated having to sell this to uh, to Musk, 
And they just decide when, when you sell an asset to another person, you don't get to raid the asset right before you leave. Oh, but it but wasn't for her benefit. Happened. It wasn't for her benefit, Robert. It was just for legal services. It was a contract. Oh, in the it was, it was course of business. for pals. This is how this system works. How can you raid the corporate treasury for your corporate legal law firm pals that will then reward you probably down the road? Um, I mean, this was, a, you know, $90 million for nothing of benefit that I could see well, that was not part of the original agreement. Even. Oh, no, no. I think what, what they had a benefit is 90 million bucks to hide from Elon the liability that he's purchasing in Twitter. Hide the hide the FBI, you know, the, the intermingling, hide all of the, the backdoor entrance stuff. Um, yeah, no, no, it's crazy. I was just looking up like, you know, I mean, the, the wire posted literally like an hour before he was able to fire these people. I mean, so that that's how preposterous. But credit to him for suing, suing on unjust enrichment, breach of fiduciary duty, abetting, uh, aiding and abetting the board members and other executives breach of their fiduciary duty. What's interesting, because he's saying it's an unreasonable fee, it's a contingency fee that wasn't properly agreed to under the California mm -hmm. ethical rules applicable under the Twitter contract. And now what's interesting is he's interpreting the uh, the. The, the the generic unfair competition uh fraud consumer fraud statute and and the fiduciary duty provisions to incorporate the California ethical rules. That will be the most interesting part of the case to watch. Did if you breach an ethical duty, have you breached a fiduciary duty? If you've breached an ethical duty, uh have you been unjustly enriched? If you've breached an ethical duty, have you also committed some form of consumer fraud or unfair competition. So all of that <clears throat> will be interesting to see because those are kind of novel theories mm -hmm. that uh, are trying to establish new law. So we'll see how that develops. But I think on, on the face of it, Wachtel is your classic corrupt corporate firm that tried to rob from Elon Musk on the eve of Elon Musk coming into power. And Elon Musk is having none of it and going back at him for it. The, the, I mean, do they have the money they still have, they'll have the money. It's not like they want. Oh yeah, have I mean, I mean this is a, this is a law firm that uh, you know uh, I think makes like what was it, almost a billion a year, something like that. It's a ridiculous amount. Not bad. Now before we go over, to, we're going over to locals now. So everybody, you got the link in there, and there is only one way to end this episode on Rumble because of the gratuitous use of the word duty coming out of Robert. <laughs> we're going to end it with this, people. <laughs> duty. It will never <laughs> get old. Diarrhea. <laughs> hey, Lois. Diarrhea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's classic. It's classic. Family Guy, Once Upon a Time, was the funniest show ever. I don't know if it's still funny. Um, all right, Robert, so we're taking this party over to Locals. We're going to get to the uh, $5 and more Locals tips. And we the, got a couple of bonus episodes. Bonus yeah, the, the Microsoft uh, uh, antitrust case concerning Call of Duty. Bank of yeah. America and Walmart get caught cheating their customers. And the TikTok Texas case and whether it violates the First Amendment. I'm not playing the duty again, but I'm everyone come on over to locals uh, and uh, the party shall continue there. I'm going to go and end this. So I'm going to continue talking as I go into the live streams and it says end on rumble. See you all on locals in five, four. Enjoy the week, people. Robert, what's your schedule for this week? Do you have anything coming up? No. Okay. I will be on the road, but I'll be doing lives nonetheless. And a couple of good guests coming up this week. So stay tuned. Ending on rumble now. Okay, let me re let me refresh here and make sure that we are only on locals. Hold on, and come on now, come on now. What's going on here? End live stream. Okay, are you sure you want to end it? Yes. Okay, so now it looks like it's ended on Rumble, and we're good on locals. 
play it, Viva. Yeah.